Welcome, welcome, welcome. How's everybody doing? Hope you are doing well. My name is Andrew Kuhn with Focus Compounding on air live with Jeff Gannon. Jeff, how's it going today? Uh, it's going very well, Andrew. How's it going with you? It's going great. We hope it's going great with everybody else as well. If this is the first time you're tuning in with us, thank you so much for joining us. Uh, be sure to check out all of our content that we put out on the internet. Go to focuscompounding.com uh, to get access to free investment write-ups from Jeff. As you could see, the last blog post was May 1st, uh, 2023. Uh, so still active on the blog and you can get all of that for free at our website. Uh, if you're interested in learning about our money management services, you can click the invest with us tab and you will learn all the information that you will want to learn about that. Uh, and of course, you can reach out to me at andrewatfocuscompound.com uh, to get access to everything that we push out into the world. Um, follow me on Twitter, which is at Focus Compound. All of the information is in the description down below. Uh, so Jeff, how's it going? How's everything on your end? Happy Wednesday. Good. Yep. Any uh, new books or anything interesting you're reading on your end? that's relevant to our listeners, any business books, anything that you think is interesting that you're particularly enjoying as you are reading it? I mean, I get to ask no. this every week. You, you finish a new book every two to three days on average. So, I mean, we should have yeah. new, new conversations about what you're reading every single week, our own little book club. Yeah, I don't think so. Um, I did a post a while back about some books that I finished. Back then, I don't remember how many I did, but I probably read a dozen or something from then. I might do posts sometime about that. Um, yeah, that was, uh, I did, yeah, and before that I did one about, you know, Disney and those. But uh, yeah, six books I've read recently, that was a while ago. Um, some of those books are pretty interesting for me, but I don't think others would be interesting. Uh, Limping on Water was a very good book. That I enjoyed a lot, but I don't think the general public would be interested in. Um, so, and why is that? Because there's very there's very little written about capital cities, and so it's someone whose career was at capital cities, so that's why it's interesting. Um, you know, recently I recommended to you uh, "Tearing Down the Walls." I think it was the name of it, which is a um, book I read when it came out, probably, or you know. It, um, yeah, probably 20 years ago or something. But that that's one um, that is, for people who only know the modern-day Jamie Dimon stuff, um, that's good to know the Sandy Wiles story because Jamie Dimon was, you know, the second most important person there, and that's what his career was. Um, not this, you know, that's how he ended up at a big bank and stuff later. Um, but building up Citigroup and all that, and all the mergers and everything from the 70s through the 90s, mostly early 2000s. Um, yeah, that, that's one that I do recommend to you, um, and think that you'd enjoy. And there's some others like that, but yeah, there's a lot of, um, I don't know that my recommendations go over that well generally. <laughs> Why do you think that is? <laughs> um, people maybe have higher standards or something, you know? Um, you know, I've said that like, you know, people complaining at, whether it's Corner Berkshire and Fairfax or whatever, that, oh, there's only one or two good ideas in here or something, you know. If there's one good idea in a book, you're pretty lucky. Um, so, yeah, I mean, I just, 
it, it's like when we talk about movie things. Um, if you see a movie a week, then you have different standards for those things. If you read a couple books a week, then you have different standards for those. And you're interested in getting some stuff out of it and connecting with other things that you know about, you know? So, um, yeah. But it's like, I mean, I think when we talk about airlines or something, I say I probably don't know that much about it. I probably read 10 or 12 books about specific airline things. Mm-hmm. Um, either specific CEOs, specific companies, whatever. Um, so, you know, there's, I'm sure there's not 10 good books about airlines. So, so but, you but know, do you think you're uh, reading to get great ideas out of books or is it more so when you're reading business history, just to sort of expand your knowledge on the history of a business or an industry? So really you could connect all of these thoughts or information from the past to the present. I mean, I think about these books really Mm -hmm. of as just learning about the history. I'm still reading the prize, but reading about, you know, the early days of, of the oil industry. I mean, all that's just completely irrelevant to today. I mean, I'm not reading it to think, oh, I'm getting a great investing idea out of it for today. I'm really just reading it just to expand my, my knowledge and broaden my scope of you know, what is the oil industry? So I could connect that back to today. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, when I said ideas I, with books, I just meant an idea that the author has, um, you know, for instance, I think uh, the Cal Newport book, um, Deep Work, I said mm-hmm. it was a good idea. I don't know if it was a good book, but, you know, sometimes there's really good books um, yeah. about not very good ideas, to be honest, too. I mean, I could recommend lots of things that are the, the author is just very skilled in what they do but they're not necessarily very perceptive about something or the idea has just been worked over in many different places. I think that people would get more out of reading deep work in terms of it changing their life or whatever, but that seems to be the standard that people expect when they say, you know, is it worth my time to read this book and everything? I don't know. Maybe other people have much more interesting things going on with the rest of their time, but it it doesn't take that long. I mean, I think on a Kindle or something, it'll tell you how long it does take to read a book. Yeah. Um, you know, estimate it based on your reading time. Um, so, you know, when I, uh, wrote articles and things, I would generally assume that people would read about a thousand words in three minutes or so. Now they're reading on screens and things they might be slower than that, but, um, yeah. So, you know, uh, a feature length article might take someone, uh, you know, the longest articles they put in newspapers and things might take someone four minutes or something to read very big magazine articles could be eight. Um, you know. The books are, you know, they can be a hundred times that sometimes it's unusual for the, uh, like business books and stuff to be quite that long, but you're reading one. I mean, the prize is not a short book. No. Um, I've recommended others that aren't short. I'm sure I've recommended Titan, you know, the Rockefeller book. It's a great um, book. Prize, the prize is easy for people to get into though, because there's a lot more to connect them with. I think geopolitically, historically, whatever, like things that they've heard of and everything, you know, there's a section in that, which will be. Um, people who just know World War II and stuff will be able to understand it, even if they knew nothing about oil or business or something before then. So there are others that are harder um, to get into. I mean, mm-hmm. it, it does help if you've read other things. So like even tearing down the walls, you know, I th- it's pretty important in that book, the back office operations. And we talked about that before. And I think it surprised you when I was saying, you know, because um, it shows up in a bunch of books from the period that mm-hmm. Wall Street firms had real problems processing all the trades and things in the go-go years. 
And we were talking about why that was, you know, because volume had come down so much from the late 20s. And obviously they hadn't been utilizing a lot of computers and things yet. And I think what technology they were using, if anything, kind of hurt them more. Um, but that's a big part of it is just being able to, that they had all these organizations that had good sales operations and stuff, but couldn't actually process everything. And it's very different from today that way. Um, so it's a weird thing to think about that that was actually a problem then, but it's a very big part of the very early part of that book because that's one of their focuses, having really good operations that way, not making mistakes on things, being able to handle high volume, um, being very lean operation. And then what he would do is they mostly buy a lot of salespeople, you know, a lot of organizations that have a lot of salespeople and many of the things that they did. Um, kind of relied on that, that them making operational improvements to things where they got a lot of salespeople in the deals. When you're reading books, do you ever feel like um, if it's a new topic? I mean, so I was reading something that was really, um, I mean, written by lawyers for lawyers, right? And sometimes I'm reading right. it, I'm like, man, like I'm trying to almost, uh, you know, transition this to like real life stuff, what it means. And I find it challenging sometimes to do that. But what's cool about reading that I like is, for example, if I went back and reread the prize, when I finish it a few years from now, I will probably mm -hmm. breeze through it way easier than the first time through. And I understand a lot of the first stuff because I've read the Titan the first time through. I read that Titan. I'm familiar with the history of oil and stuff like that. But I do like to reread stuff because it's always so surprising to me how the second time or third time you reread something, you take something new away from it. But um, I don't know. I almost think about it like chipping away at an iceberg. And the first time you're reading something that's an unfamiliar topic, you're kind of like, okay, I'm trying to connect these dots. I've read other things in my life that sort of remind me of this. I'm trying to understand, right? As opposed to just like reading, I'm reading to understand. Um, but, you know, the second or third time through or down the line, as your knowledge base grows, then you're able to quickly breeze through it more because you just have more familiarity with it. But I guess my question to you is like, when you're reading stuff, are you ever kind of like, wait, what does that mean? I mean, I, that's why I like the Kindle, because if there's a word that I don't understand, I like that you could just click right. it right there and like get a definition of it. Sometimes I'm, you know, taking own, my own notes and like looking stuff up online to learn more about it and stuff. I just think those are the best books. And because really it's challenging to you, it's pushing you to expand your, your knowledge and and read and and sometimes i get to a part that may be boring because i'm not interested in it i think mm -hmm. it's boring to me perhaps maybe because i don't understand what it is so it's like you almost you have to push through that because you want to learn and expand and um you know just broaden your knowledge base so i don't really know what the question is but i guess really you ever read stuff and you're kind of like i don't understand what this is uh you know i have to do more research on it and and stuff like that uh so I, I take notes, you know, I write things down and I reread books. I, I don't, and I've never um, had a problem with not understanding a book, right? So, you know, it's kind of like this thing I said with uh, movies or something. I know that people don't like that feeling that they don't understand what's happening and stuff, but I figure it's a book. It's trying to explain it to me. I mean, the lawyer stuff they're talking about is a little different because sometimes in certain academic writing, certain legal writing, um, they, they're just using large chunks of words that they're used to using in their profession. And they actually don't care if you understand it. They're not trying to explain it to you. Um, mm -hmm. whereas if you're reading a book about, um, 
like uh, a, a, I want to say a popular science book, but like um, there there are books there. There's books. Uh, there's a book, uh, Black Holes, Wormholes, uh, something like that. It's by Kip Thorne, um, and so it's a history of the. Um, uh, it's a history of sort of from around the time of Einstein. It's it's actually a little bit earlier, but how does it you how do you go from um, the the work that Einstein was doing in the beginning to actually all this stuff on black holes and things? Because that there you go, black holes, wormholes, and time machines. So is it difficult? Um, it, he's trying to explain it to you, so it's fine. You just keep reading and you'll get it. Um, you know, uh, uh, but an, a, a paper in a journal about any of these topics. If you're just reading a, a paper that's written in an academic journal for other um, professors in the, in this field, in, in like astrophysics or something, there um, it'll be just about closed time-like curves or something. It it will be impenetrable, right? But they don't care if you understand that. They do care if you understand this, right? And so um, reading something like that is helpful. Um, that's an easy one because it's someone who worked a lot in the, um, uh, is that the book? Let's see. Is it? I'm not sure. Uh, no, if you go down there, there's the one I was thinking of, I think is on the far left. If you go down, um, yeah, the one in white. Yeah. There you go. Yeah. So it just didn't, what, uh, I believe so. Wait, who's the author list on this one? Kip Thorne. It is Kip Thorne. Yeah. Yeah. So that's the one. So um, he and he wrote a couple books. He wrote the Science of Interstellar, which is probably even easier to read and to that's understand, right? right? Yeah, um, because he was the consultant on the film Interstellar. Um, but that kind of thing. It, what I mean is, even if it's supposedly very difficult or something, it's really not. Uh, you know, because he takes you through all of it, trying to explain it well to you. There are things where they do don't do that. And there are things in finance where they don't do that. Um, and, and sometimes they themselves may not understand it very well or have trouble explaining it, and, and that becomes suspicious if that's the case. Um, a lot of use of jargon, large parts of repeated things that are the same as what other people use, so not having very clear thoughts of their own and everything. Whereas here, he does, he does a good job of being able to explain, kind of creating his own stories of like, okay, what would it be like if something did approach a black hole? Let me take you through that and talk to you about it and stuff to help orient you. And then he's going to talk about the things that each of them um, found out and everything. So it, you know, that kind of thing is I'm trying to pick like what subject could be the most difficult, right? I don't know. Maybe black holes aren't the most difficult, but that's an idea of something that might be, people might think, I don't want to read a book about that, but it's fine. You know, it's, it's not difficult with him doing it. It would be very difficult if you just picked up a textbook, which isn't really intended for, um, for people who don't have a very specific preparation with it and has a very limited way of how it explains it. You know, all this stuff is much easier than just picking up a random microeconomics textbook or something because sometimes that's very specific in how it doesn't try to explain things in a, well. It, it puts it into a real context of language and stuff that's very academic. Sure. I mean, these books are, in theory, written for the masses, right? I mean, to sell as many copies as possible. So you probably want to present it in a different light as opposed to a PhD physics textbook that there's a lot of pre-qualification to get to that level. Yeah, it's also just better if, if they understand the material well, they should be able to explain it using analogies 
and giving some answers to things and comparing it to things in a way that's understandable to people. Um, you know, a lot of times that's the other problem with things like textbooks or something. The, the things that are the worst to read about are people who probably don't understand the material that they start incorporating into it, you know? And mm -hmm. so there's some stuff in, um, there, there's some books that I think are excellent on that kind of stuff. There was a book fortunes formula that I thought was very good. And yep. there was a book, um, man for all markets. You know, I thought that was very good, uh, which t in some ways deal with things like the Kelly criterion and stuff like that. Right. But there's some stuff, Kelly criterion, um, weighted average cost of capital with like, um, DCFs and all that that gets into finance things and um, I think is put into stuff that the people don't understand very well that they're putting it into but they decide that they need to use it or something that kind of stuff is the most dangerous uh, in being really hard to understand because they probably don't understand it very well themselves and they don't understand how they're applying it into what they're talking to you about so it's not that a book all about the Kelly criterion would be bad but a book that suddenly has a chapter on the Kelly criterion is going to be really hard to get through because the person who's kind of teaching you this themselves is not really a great teacher of this material because they probably, it's not something that's second nature to them. So what are your thoughts on black holes and time warps? Oh, it's first like a science book. That's an excellent book. Um, all of mm -hmm. Kip Thorne's um, books for the, the general public are very good. Just you might like the Interstellar book. One day. Heck yeah. That's my favorite movie. Interstellar. Yeah, kidding me. So you might any, like that any because Hans that... Zimmer soundtrack <laughs> is just like I mean, it's always like one of the best movies, some of the best movies. Yeah, so I mean, that one is the one that I would say if people are going to just pick up a random one would be the one to do because it also is a little behind the scenes sort of thing and stuff. Um, yeah, and also in related to those science things is like I've read books that are because they're much easier in for people. I think on the science stuff is books that do the science of other things. So the science of Star Trek or of whatever, you know, alien invasion things or, you know, and it, so they connect it to something that people could actually imagine, right? Like, um, giving the example of gravity and tides and stuff, right? It could be pretty hard for people to understand, but when you explain that the ship in, um, independence day, it, it all would just have to come near the earth as close as you see in that movie and there'd be massive destruction. It doesn't actually have to fire anything. When you explain it that way to people, then they start to understand, oh, you know, um, in a much better way because they've seen that movie or they have some picture of that in their mind and they can kind of talk about that and think about that. Um, so a lot of those, you know, we talked about the Einstein thing. That's a big important part of Einstein is like imagining things visually and coming up with analogies for things. Um, you know, I don't remember if the thing was exactly that he was sitting on a train and saw another train going or something yeah. and was thinking, oh, well, you can't really tell actually, you know, when you're in a station and one train moves and the other doesn't, you can't tell which one's moving for a moment. So um, that is often like more important in coming up with ideas and explaining it to people is being able to... Um, like I said, like teaching it. Basically, you know, a good book in terms of nonfiction stuff is going to be teaching you the material. Mm -hmm. And so I think that that is what's, you know, uh, the best thing for people is to that you start reading and you understand that it's okay what the way that they're writing this book. But to be honest, no, in my entire life, I've never stopped looked to look up a word that I found in a book. <laughs> I've never stopped because I've gotten confused by the book. Um, you just keep going 
and it will make more and more sense as you go on. And from context and stuff you'll get from other things, you know, this will all make a lot more sense. Um, you know, especially I probably read a lot more books that were written a long time ago or in different contexts or something. And that probably throws people more. So something that was not needing explanation, you know, in, in 1950 or something needs a lot of explanation today. And that kind of thing will, will baffle people more. Um, so you're just used to books from different times and that's a lot more helpful. Um, because you know, anything you read is going to de depend on that, um, that they under think that you understand, you know, mm -hmm. um, material or, or don't that way. So, you know, when we're talking about, um, I mean, when you're talking about history things, normally like the prize, you know, normally they explain that pretty well. Um, and the prize avoids getting to any real talking about, like it doesn't talk about petroleum engineering or something. You know what I mean? Yeah. It mm -hmm. doesn't start going, it avoids doing that. It tells you in very general terms, some important things about what economically, why this is important or something, but it makes a strong effort, I think to avoid that because it assumes that if it starts doing any of that, that's something the general public doesn't understand. And you'd have to take 10 pages to explain something that's only, that's not worth spending that much time on, you know? Mm -hmm. So just trust us. This is what, you know, um, yeah. So, I mean, uh, yes, but I, I do not do that. That's correct. I do take notes on it, write down things to try to connect it to other things that I'm reading, but it is true that I just power through whatever books I'm reading. I, with very rare exception, as we talked about on the previous podcast where I threw out a book, I don't stop reading a book once I start. I think you mentioned something about with Bill Gates where he said like bad books are harder like take longer to read than good books. Yeah. That's mm -hmm. definitely true, especially if you're taking notes and stuff. Um, yeah. And then we generally, if I like the book, then like I said, I go to the works cited and stuff, um, the bibliography and then find other things that way or other, or other books by the same author or something, right? Like that's a big thing. If you find an author that you think you like how they explain things and it's good to read the other material that they have. Mm -hmm. Um, because in a subject that's really unfamiliar, it's really helpful to have, um, an author that will guide you through those things. The unfortunate thing with some of them, like I mentioned, um, I think the first tycoon is a great book. Okay. Uh, but what happens sometimes with uh, these business history books is you get authors who then move on and, or, or, you know, that, that they didn't write it for business reasons. Um, they're not a business writer. And so you have an author that mostly writes about other things. Like in this case, I think the author mostly writes in that period of time, but yeah. different things that don't have to do with um, business history. I read a book, um, Disney's Land, that I would recommend that one for people who are interested in Disney especially. Um, so it's just uh, Walt, the, Walt Disney's involvement with the coming up with to the opening day, basically, of Disneyland. Mm -hmm. Okay. So it's not, it's a pretty short period of time that it covers and everything. But I think that author just wrote history. Like, um, I don't know if it was civil war history or other things like that. It just is written historical books has not done other business books that way, but a very, very good way of researching it. And, uh, it has a lot of original, not, not exactly original research, but it has very strong use of research. So that I wasn't surprised if I heard that he was a historian uh, or wrote history books. And um, it also has a very strong way of how to present that stuff. 
basically you felt like he did a huge amount of research on um, the stuff that's being presented to you, but then knew how to present it in a very uh, easy for you to understand sort of narrative fashion, which is really good when you get authors like that. Um, and that's why I really like like the first tycoon or Titan, which is, you know, Cherno, um, because those are the toughest books to write because they do a huge amount of research, but they don't have to make you feel like they've done all that research. Mm -hmm. The ones I don't like as much is where I feel like every bit of research that they did is in the book and it's in there just because they, you know, found the stuff or whatever. Um, so I'm, it would be horribly unpleasant to write this kind of book because you get entire things that you spend a lot of time to get the material and then you, you don't use any of it, you know? I'm always um, curious about I mean, like when you're reading these old books from, you know, on time periods that were, let's say, a hundred years ago, and they have like dialogue between two characters. I'm always like, how accurate is that? I mean, we're going off recollection here. Are we yeah. going off what was written no. down on, in like a journal? How, you know, how true is that? Because, I mean, is the author Dial from their perspective, yeah. are they having to think to themselves, okay, what would for example, Warren Buffett say in this situation, what would Susie Buffett say in this situation for somebody feeling mm -hmm. like this? Also, you know, this was someone's perspective on it, but the other individual's perspective is a little bit different. How do I connect these two dots to give a accurate picture of what we're talking about? Yeah. Uh, you know, so history goes back to Herodotus was the first one that wrote something like that. Cause the name history is taken from a name that he used. It doesn't mean anything really other than that, what he called his book. So, um, from that time on that I can think of the big part of invention in those books, that was the tradition was the dialogue. So they were pretty clear about it back then in ancient times, as opposed to us today, but it also was easier that way it was very clear that they were making up things that seemed appropriate for the situation, right? In other words, people, they, what they knew was they, they were told by some sources, right? That so-and-so, uh, on the eve of the battle, so-and-so and so-and-so were having an argument. One wanted to, um, you know, go forward and pursue the other side, and this one wanted to hold back and was worried that they were outnumbered and whatever. Okay, so then they just make up the dialogue, like, mm -hmm. that's what they knew about it. That's the passed down tradition. Now, in modern day, you have, they can use many different sources to get much more accurate stuff about did a conversation really happen and whatever. But they're still not recording the conversations. Yeah. So the actual dialogue is completely made up. And in the cases in which it's very memorable dialogue, we can guess, even if we're not told, exactly who the source is and how they were told it. So, like the snowball, in the really good, dialogue things it's probably warren buffett recollecting the story acting it out for alice schroeder right so like if she has a i mean i guess the jack ringwald one is also an american capitalist but you know the exact things of like if he he says you know um that he was late to the meeting and that you know he 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 had basically a series of he wanted to back out of ringwald buffett felt but Buffett wasn't going to give him any room to do that. So, you know, Ringwald was like, oh, I'm sure you'll want an audit. No, no, I audited numbers are the worst, you know, that kind of thing. That's probably told directly as a story, right? That's what it mm. sounds like, and we can tell that, you know. Um, but obviously they make it up for tons of situations where no one would tell it in dialogue. If I said to someone I had a, 
discussion with you about something. I would just say that we talked about it and stuff. I wouldn't say what dialogue you said. So the dialogue stuff is all made up that way. Yeah, it has to be. Mm-hmm. I just wonder how much of that gets lost in translation. I mean, I've seen stats that say even 50% of what we remember isn't true. And, oh. uh, uh, you know, yeah. so it's like it didn't actually um, happen that way. That's just your memory of it. And perhaps it's mm-hmm. an unpleasant memory. So maybe you're masking something or in your head, you just kind of hit control, alt, delete. So I don't know. I always think about that. Um you know, I mean, now when you're they're quoting letters or stuff like that, it's kind of more of an uh, well, original source, so it's different. That, yes, that's the great stuff about old books, and the terrible stuff about today. I mean, I guess today they could comb through the internet to find all your material. It would be a little weird to quote from it. Exactly. Um, they have a lot of you know sick that they'd have to put in the in the parentheses all the time to explain why uh, you've left out words and misspelled things and stuff. But they could rebuild all your communications. But other than that. Uh, the great thing about really old books and stuff is that, yes, they have entire letters and things that they can go from. More recent things, they're just missing stuff. Um, and that is a problem with like old, uh, older books, actually. Um, a weird thing that happens in them is that if it's about two people or something and then they're in the same place, it has less material on them. Because if one was in California and one was in New York, it has letters back and forth all the time for them. If they're now both in New York for six weeks, they talked all the time, but we don't know what they said and what they did, right? Um, so, you know, there's really good use of that stuff. Disney's Land actually uses a transcript at one point of an actual TV broadcast. That's what I mean about how good the storytelling is in that one. And so, it, it and it's really good because the TV broadcast makes it seem like the opening day of Disneyland was a big success. But the true story is it was a terrible disaster and so first the chapter gives you the tv transcript and makes it seem like for about a chapter like this is what happened and then it says now let's tell you the real story behind the scenes and stuff and tells that part so um that's a good way to really imprint on people the idea of what happened there and everything you know um but there are books that maybe are too much of a certain style and they're hard to do i mean i read a book um, was it Billion Dollar Fantasy? It was a, it was a book about DraftKings and um, FanDuel or something, right? Um, it was one of those books. There's been a couple written on that topic. And um, do you have that? Yep. Let's see if this yeah, is right here. I was thinking of. Yeah. So I'm pretty sure I don't want to say an author name or something. But yeah, I'm pretty sure that this this is the one. Um, so I liked the story and I found it a very good business book that way. It did make me want to put down the book in terms of the writing style, right? It was pretty aggressive in characterizing people's state of mind and stuff, just in everything. It felt like sometimes more than some novels do um, about like the attitude of everyone that they had and stuff. It, it felt almost like some things that you see in like, um, uh, I, I don't know the, they were not willing to just have people come on and talk and everything. It was very characterized in terms of whether it was the way they dressed, how they talked, whatever went into a kind of a lot of that, not a lot, but aggressive, a short burst, but aggressively trying to put them in your mind with a certain kind of stereotype or something. Um, as if it was trying to write like a, uh, 
screenplay thing that was, you know, helping you out with that so you could quickly understand the characters and stuff. Um, so that one was one that, you know, if, if people pick that up and read it, I, I like the story a lot and it's an important thing to understand. You may pick up on what kind of things I don't like as much in a book, a nonfiction book, and what can make it a little more difficult because that's one where you were saying how much of this is the author's stuff and how much is the the subject. Yeah. I, I felt a lot of the author in this book. Really? Yeah. And sometimes I feel that with, but I just ignore it. Like, um, the very early parts of a lot of biographies, I don't like because a lot of people, a lot of authors like to sort of psychoanalyze, you know, and it's fine to get some stories and everything, but you know, um, they weren't there. They're not a trained psychologist. Um, and I'm not sure if I agree with, you know, like they are able to gather a couple of things from childhood and then they try to make that into whatever they have just cause that's the only material they have, you know? Um, so those are fine, but to me it's the same as like when I mentioned the, the social network, um, uh, it was a movie, right? Like people say like, what if that is true and what's not and stuff? I mean, in a sense it's all true, but the, the, stuff that they're telling the story with, like what they're hanging the story on of what it is, is totally made up. So, you know, the emotional, whatever they're trying to explain to you, the meaning of it, the meaning of it is made up, but events actually happen. So that's an interesting thing about what does it matter when people make up dialogue and stuff for biographies that we read. The, the thing that's most likely that they could make up is the meaning of it, right? Like their interpretation of Rockefeller's character or something. Yeah. That's something that you can't really get away from usually. Um, yeah. And I've read some books where they didn't like their subject at all. And those can be a little difficult to be honest. There's a few where I've read that where it's a little difficult to get through. So there's some that are okay, but where they're, where it is like, um, a hatchet job kind of thing. Those can be a little tough. They have to kind of at least like some things about them or something. Um, because if they don't, it can be a little, again, too much of the author in a different way. It's like the author criticizing or something, you know? So I always wonder too, how much of these, um, individuals that maybe an author is speaking to, and I'm just using Buffett's example, cause we talk about him on, on the podcast, right? So Alice Schroeder, she's speaking to people in his network, his kids, his close friends, people he works with, how much of them are actually giving a very truthful, um, you know, opinion of him, situations and, and whatnot. I mean, perhaps maybe his kids are, I don't know, but you know, people close to him, right. That know him, they know mm -hmm. he doesn't like criticism Would they, he, they'd be maybe worried that he, they say something or whatever. And maybe they're just not as truthful because they don't want to give their own viewpoint of a situation that is not flattering or whatever. So I'm just always curious just how real it is or how much, someone's opinion was reality of whatever they're talking about. Yeah. Well, Alice Schroeder just talked a little bit about that and she's given some hints that maybe more of the real stuff came directly from Buffett and a few other people, but that a lot of people around him seemed very concerned about, um, not that they were concerned about things getting back to him and whatever, but more that they had a certain view of him that was overly idealized. Right. So I think she joked one time that someone tried to convince her that Warren didn't really like making money all that much, that money was important to him, you know? Mm -hmm. um, and I'm sure in some sort of sense of what they were explaining that, that made some sense. But uh, yeah, and the, the, there's some stuff of that included in the book. 
you definitely get that feeling where he buys some shares off of Walter Schloss um, that there was some conflicted feeling there that, uh, you know, because he had basically sold him the shares because he demanded that I need the shares and stuff. And then later he did something to kind of make up for that and everything. Um, but certainly it's a pretty rosy picture that Schloss has of that. On the other hand, in that book, um, probably the thing that bothered Buffett, I would guess, is that all the stuff about the portrayal of Susie Buffett, his, his wife, um, Susan Buffett, is, uh, more Alice Schroeder's doing right with context that she put together from other things and is not presenting that situation the way that Buffett probably explained it to her. Um, then that's probably the thing that bothered him the most about it. You know, I, I would guess that that's where I feel it is most different and most that's most determined by the author on that stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, which now doesn't mean do that it's inaccurate at all. I was going to say, what was, you know, what mm-hmm. is the, accurate I don't think picture? it means it's inaccurate. Yeah. I don't think it means it's accurate, but if he had cho- if he had had a man write the book instead, I think it would be covered differently. For instance, well, I mean, we have another book, American Capitalist, that you know doesn't dive into all that, even though it knows some of it. Um, and I do think that that um, uh, you know, in the snowball, the author doesn't go out of her way to take Warren Buffett's description of the situation Mm -hmm. on that she's willing to explain that in a different way on that and um that is probably like the thing that would have bothered him or something i think because if he which he could do if he wrote the book um but since he wasn't writing the book you give up your ability to how you portray other people and so it could have a weird portrayal of your mother your wife or your kids or whatever compared to how you would write it or you would just avoid the topic um, but you know, he chose to have someone else write it. And so that's what happens. Why do you think he wanted someone to write a book about him? That's a very good question. I don't know the answer to that one. I thought it was weird. Like, cause really someone could write want to write a book about you and you could say, I'm not going to cooperate, you know, piss off, whatever. I don't want to do this. And they could say, okay, well, I'm still going to write it about you. So it could that's be what they more, do, yeah. <laughs> more accurate with you cooperating or it could be my view of a situation mm-hmm. which is how most individuals eventually say ah fine well if you're going to do it let's do it so it's somewhat real or whatever um i don't know it is kind of a interesting ploy like that but i mean that's you know freedom of press freedom of writing freedom of speech people could do that but i don't know buffett wanted someone to write a book about him and he chose yeah, I mean, he chose she, her yes uh no, he completely chose her, and the only reason why the book was done is obviously they gave her like a couple thousand hours of sitting down and talking and stuff, um, and access to his files too. Uh, yeah, I mean, I think that part's unusual. I, he probably a long time ago thought he would always write a book that would be um, more along the lines of like the the Ben Graham, Phil Fisher stuff that he liked. Um, it probably always would include some other elements though, but it wouldn't have been a biography like this. And I think he wanted to do have someone write a book instead of him doing the book. Um, but I don't know. It's a very good question. Like, why he didn't have to do it. He could have just said, I'm never going to write a book. Um, so it, it's an unusual one there, actually, the snowball. Do you think when people bring up the snowball to him, like, say, people on the street, oh, I love the snowball, he's just kind of like, uh, cringe. <laughs> like, I just, I really don't like that book at all. 
Yeah, I don't know how he reacts to that one. Yeah, probably tries to ignore that, you know. Just, uh-huh. But that would be my guess, knowing what we do about Buffett and everything. I don't think he would say, no, I'm not. I, I hate that book. I'm not going to look at it, whatever. Mm. Um, yeah, because I, I doubt that he dislikes most of it and stuff. I mean, we don't. who knows? But I think that it's probably just some specific things. Mm-hmm. I don't think that it's the fact that there's a book out there that describes a lot of the stuff um, from the business things and all of that. Um, yeah, I mean, it's not, like I said, it's not, I mean, it's an authorized biography, basically. Not that he has final say on doing it or anything, but he cooperated, like we just described, completely on that one. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Do you have a favorite book? Not really, no. I mean, for me, reading stuff, I mean, I think we talked about it or something when I was talking about novels and things, and Casino Royale is probably a, a favorite. Uh, it's very brief. Novella-length ones, you know, work better usually in terms of if you have a single favorite that way, but there's tons of different authors and, and things that I, I like, but, um, mainly for reading, um, you're going to do a lot of it. And so I think just that certain things are good in different ways and trying to, what I always say is like, when you read a book, you, you just want to say, what can I take from this? What can I, you know, literally what can I steal from this and stuff, whether it's ideas or whatever things, Um, but also, you know, you can, you don't have to necessarily believe that how everything's portrayed in billion dollar fantasy by the author is exactly how it happened or that that's exactly how you'd write it or whatever, but there's just really useful about understanding, um, that industry and everything and being able to apply to other industries. So just the way that it works with regulatory things with the customer acquisition stuff or any of that thing, um, you know. And then you can apply it to other areas. Um, so there's some books that I really enjoy for what I can get out of them. I wouldn't say that they're great books or something. You know, I've read Ben Graham's memoirs. Wouldn't necessarily recommend those to other people. And you have to find them, you know, it could be a little more expensive to find. Um, the book Distant Force on Teledyne got a lot out of that, but I wouldn't recommend it to people. They're going to find it very boring and it's pretty expensive to find usually. Um, Limping on Water, which I mentioned. Again, you can find a bunch out about in very indirect ways about capital cities and connect it with other things you know about that company. But I don't think it's of any interest to most people. Got it. Well, today we're going to uh, um, answer questions from listeners. It's been a while since we have done that. So I pulled a few that individuals had emailed in. Um, and you can email your questions to me at focuscompounding at gmail.com. And then we'll pull through some on uh, Twitter as well. Uh, But for the first question, somebody said, I was trying to learn a bit more about auditors and their role in evaluating a company. I'm not sure I can put a concrete level of importance of having a possibly bad auditor or a company changing auditors often. I've listened to almost all your podcasts by now, and I've heard on and off talks about auditors. I would be interested to hear how you think about it and possibly provide some historic examples. The example of a company I'm researching is below that sparked my question to you. I normally skip the auditor report and have only started to investigate now that I'm in microcap land, not to mention from listening to your podcast. So I didn't include that because I don't want to talk individually about an auditor if you think it's a good auditor, bad auditor for an individual company yeah. on a broad scale. So I figured you wouldn't want to give an opinion on that, but maybe just more so on auditors in general. We've, we have spoken a lot about auditors. We A question was asked of you at the Will Oak event 
on mm -hmm. um you know delaware or certain auditors and where companies incorporate and stuff like that so do you have any general thoughts on how you look at companies auditors how you do some research behind that yeah this one is difficult to talk about first of all because i don't want to give historic examples um they're never really resolved or they're usually not really resolved so that some people would say allegedly, you know, that I'm saying allegedly this happened or that happened. Um, so I don't want to, you know, slander any particular companies and, and auditors and stuff. Um, but I, I think this both gets overblown and, and under considered too. Uh, both of those when I talk to people. So the overblown thing is when you start talking about this, then people start worrying about everybody. Right. So, um, I had, you know, someone emailing me that they had read something about some big four auditor that, and you know, a bad job that they did on something and, and everything that went wrong and with that company. And so now they're saying like, Oh, so this must mean this is a bad auditor for whatever firm I'm looking at, which is a tiny company that's using a, a big auditor. Um, no, that's, that's not, you know, a bad sign or anything. Um, the, the concern, the audit thing is a soft sign that can go into the whole category of, um, uh, you know, the whole category of sort of spotting frauds and things like that. And not just frauds, but situations where it, it, there might be a much higher risk of fraud. So it's kind of like when we talked about the, the Taiwan semiconductor thing, right? What I like to say is, you know, if your average company has like a, uh, 1% chance that there's going to be really bad things happening here because of the management misleading you, whatever things, what you want to do is what are the situations where it's 10 times higher, right? Like if it's half a percent, 1%, whatever, what are the situations where it's 5%, 10%? That's what we're worried about is finding those most likely ones. What is the one out of 20 companies that just seems like something else is up here and, and stuff. Um, the reason why I don't like to talk about it is because it's been, um, it gets picked up on to be honest. Um, you know, we, we talked to a company once and I'm sure that they asked them some things about stuff because someone knew that I had a concern about some auditor thing. Um, mm -hmm. I know that someone took and linked to a thing that I like, you know, had written about a firm where I was concerned about their auditing thing. Um, I'm not going to say the name of that company, but it delisted. I assume it'll relist at some point and stuff. But in that case, what had happened is I believed that they, I believe two things. One, I thought there was a higher risk of them misstating things about their inventory. And you could find this out for things that weren't just the auditing. But the second thing, which is the one that made me single it out to complain, is that while they used a standard disclosure, which is technically true in their case, um, you know, there's been no disagreement with the auditor. That's not why they resigned, blah, blah, blah. And, you know, um, they... I felt it was misleading what they were saying. So basically how I reconstructed the situation by looking it up is I felt that there was a firm where a someone um, audited the company at that firm for many years. And then there was action taken, uh, like PCAOB type stuff, against the um, firm overall because I believe, and this is not... A matter of like public record on this stuff exactly who did this and with what thing because they don't single out what firm they were working on but probably it was this firm uh this company i mean this public company uh where the there was inadequate supervision by a partner at the firm but, but there's just one, one partner firm um uh, of the person doing the audit right so but how i reconstructed it is okay then the person who was actually doing the audit probably quit 
left because now that firm can't, that auditor can't audit public companies for a while. Um, and started up their own thing and continued to actually audit this firm. You know, that was my interpretation from reading it. It doesn't tell you any of this, but from looking into it, what I felt is they said we changed auditors and they did not change auditors. What happened is they changed the names of the firms, but I believe the same person probably wasn't supervised on the first thing and was doing all the audits and then was set up their own firm and, and did the audits for the same company. So it didn't like that and uh, didn't like the way they disclosed it, you know, but lots of companies will do that. Like technically I didn't feel what they were saying was a lie, but it was misleading in every way trying to explain the situation. And, um, so that one was also combined with stuff with the, um, possibility that there was accounting issues. Um, and it was accounting issues with inventory growth, which we don't talk about all that much, but basically it's easy to detect in that the, the stated earnings weren't, producing a lot of free cash flow ever. Actually, the company just was pretty much cash flow neutral, even though it was growing all the time and stuff. Uh, I mean, even though it was very profitable. Now, the argument is the reason why is because the free cash flow was going to fund growth and stuff. But the inventory and then also breaking down how much of the inventory is work in process stuff versus um, finished and what kind of stuff is it and how do they review the inventory for possible obsolescence and all of that. And then also in this case, what was most worrying of course and this isn't weird companies do this is that their credit line was dependent on the value of the inventory that was their borrowing base right so like we talked about oil companies or something their borrowing base might be set that the value let's say like the present value of your oil reserves or something might be used for how much you can borrow that gives you an incentive to misstate the value a little bit right because if you really need money okay let's just you know adjust something here about what's proven or not or something um and, and then we can borrow a little bit more in this case if all you're borrowing is that you can borrow half or a third or whatever of your inventory stated value then you might misstate your inventory so that was a concern on that one um the the auditor thing here's the thing with a management i trust i don't care if they give me unaudited things i would rather unaudited um financials from management that I'm fine with than audited by the best auditor that I could choose for a firm that I do not like uh, the management and what they're doing. Um, you know, the auditor doesn't prepare the financial statements and it's not a very good protection against, you know, fraud and stuff. Um, I, I think in general, also knowing what someone's up to and stuff isn't even a protection. I, I mean, I got to remind people of this, but like if someone is trying to misstate things to you and stuff, thinking that you understand how they're doing it and what they're doing and everything isn't a particularly good protection. Um, and sometimes I think people think that's fine. Um, so I'm more sensitive to this than most people. I think I'll just eliminate situations where I don't like this. Um, a lot of people get interested in it. Um, I, I don't think it's a great idea because then you might have problems with anything that you see on the balance sheet to some extent. You could have problems with things that you see um, reported in terms of the earnings not being what you think they are. And, you know, but there's all different levels of it. There's things that I think are ongoing, ongoing and uh, aggressive frauds and stuff in public markets. There's ones where I think the people are probably not committing a fraud, but are extremely. Um, willing to take advantage of others 
right? So like it's dangerous for my minority shareholders and for anyone else in deals with them. And there's, there's long lists of lawsuits and things that let you see that. Um, it, you know, in the case of like, there's a company that I, I was fascinated by because they bought some stuff that I know is real and I've been to. And like, so I liked going to those places and checking out everything to see why is this company buying these very real cash flow producing things if I think that it's a fraud, but I'm pretty sure it is a fraud. And the SEC has pretty much told them that it's, a, I mean, it still continues to trade, but it like, if you look at the action taken against it and stuff that's been put down, it's pretty clearly like accusations of fraud. Um, so those are ones even then I, I can't figure out exactly what they're up to. Why not buy, buy a, you know, Bitcoin mining company or something rather than a legitimate company? Is there some way that they're funneling the money out to themselves and not making it look like that? Is there some reason why they're doing it in a very legitimate way that when this is all over and blows up, there'll be real companies with real cash flow left over? I don't know. You know, um, I can't get in the head of all those things and fully understanding because it gets really weird when the picture that they're presenting to you isn't very um, honest. So the typical things that we say about the auditing thing is, okay, has the company, does the company switch auditors all the time? That's not a great sign because whatever they say, the problem is why do you really have a problem with your auditor? Why do you really have a problem with your CFO? There can be other reasons, but you know, if people are resigning from your audit committee or quitting as your CFO or um, not continuing on as your auditor, although you'll say in many different ways that they left for, personal reasons and because they didn't want to relocate or because, uh, you know, whatever, there was no disagreements and whatever. It's because you have a bad relationship problem child, you know, um, for whatever they're doing. So those aren't good signs. If any of those things happen, I'd say, um, I'd like it to be a auditor that's more appropriate for the company, like more like other companies are audited by normally if you're a, financial company, then you should be audited by someone who has experience doing that. If you're an oil company, someone who has experience doing that, whatever the auditor should be near for some reason, um, where your business is and stuff. Um, and not a, a very strange R choice or weird size or something like that. So a big company being audited by a small firm where you're a very big account and stuff, um, at a far distance would be weird, right? That'd be really strange, right? Let's say we're in a New York company and we're being audited by someone from Colorado, um, and we're huge compared to all of their other clients. It sounds like then you want to have a lot of influence over the situation. Sure, right? yeah. You know, but if we're a North Dakota company and we use someone that's quite small in North Dakota and we're a small company, then I'd be like, okay, that's normal. That's what you would expect. That would make mm -hmm. sense. Um, but like I said, but if you were in New York, San Francisco, Miami, whatever, and then suddenly you're using someone who doesn't audit other companies in that area, in your industry, that same size, you know, any of that's odd. Um, obviously people could just be doing it to save a lot of money and stuff to use really small auditors and whatever. Um, and since there's been regulation changes and stuff over time, I don't think there's a lot of auditors that want to make small amounts of money auditing very small firms because they have to do the the public company stuff and there's disclosures and inspection stuff. So I think it's not a great business to do a few small companies. If you can do dozens of them, I guess it's okay. Um, yeah, but it's part of a bigger thing. It's just, a, it's the auditor one way or the other is never going to give me a lot of confidence. Um, but 
it's just a sign of, okay, then they don't care about the audit. They don't think the audit is important if they're willing to do this. Um, mm-hmm. Yeah, what are your thoughts on that? No, I'd say that's true. I would say another thing that could be weird, which we've seen throughout our own research is if there's like, um, you check to see how many companies the auditor audits and it's like one or two. Mm-hmm. And, or you see that they audit a bunch of other companies and the other ones are just penny stock pump and dumps, right? You could do your research to see what type of businesses those are. Those are things that generally stick out. We have seen it a few times, I think, where like the company's in one part of the United States and it's being audited by a firm that's, you know, across the country in like Mm -hmm. a small town. Um, And maybe sometimes even asking management and you could, ask them like why did they choose them how did that happen and and you know sort of the story behind there but no i mean i like to look at to see what other companies they audit and if your business you think is legit but they audit a bunch of other companies that aren't legit or are pumping dumps or have had issues in the past that should be a huge tell to you um do you think it's as important in larger companies like oh yeah, I think it's more, dollar companies. Yeah, yeah. I, more important in terms of the yeah. opportunities for fraud and stuff. They're probably greater to have more sophisticated frauds at very large companies. There's a few things. I mean, yeah. there's also there's situations where I wouldn't be concerned about fraud, and this is maybe overconfidence or whatever about it. But if the company is a single line company or fairly simple, and you can track certain things, it shouldn't be that difficult to understand. That at very large companies, there's no way to understand it. So it's just impossible. If Berkshire or GE or something wants to do things, they can do it. I mean, um, you know, so and no one can really understand what's what's going on with the accounting um, because all sorts of things are being aggregated together. Um, so. I think it's much easier with smaller companies that way. And the income statements are going to be the hardest one to understand. You know, and then you've got your cash flow statement, which is a little bit easier that way. And your balance sheet's probably, you know, for a lot of companies is the easiest, but not always. There's companies that have level three assets and stuff. Um, and, and so I think the issue really is an overall picture of whether you think that there's problems there. Um, and, and it has to do with detecting certain things in terms of the accounting that might be a problem interpreting how management talks and and all that kind of stuff um and thinking about the business and the choices they're making you know um but it also you know some of them are open to debate um there's a couple companies where i felt and talked to you about and stuff and and basically felt that the company was either making it impossible to understand what was going on or was making a lot of choices which seemed like uh, I would steer clear of it. And, you know, and there's some people who defend those and I'm thinking of a couple multi-billion dollar companies, you know, and that hedge funds are in and stuff. Um, so, you know, um, what are your, I mean, what are your thoughts on like, let's say there's a business yeah. that they have their core business, right? Which does really great. Uh, but then they're trying to almost pivot and, you know, go into this other industry, this other business, business line. And, let's say in their conference calls, they're talking about this other business line that trades at huge multiples, they're acknowledging it. So perhaps Mm -hmm. maybe that's why they're going in that other industry or business line. And I'm sure there is some synergy between the two, um, you know, businesses, but what would your thoughts be if, you know, 
you rewind a couple of years and they were pumping, I don't want to say pumping, but talking and being very excited about the opportunity mm-hmm. in this other business, acknowledging the multiples that these companies trade at. And then fast forward to the present, that business line didn't work out. And then, you know, the company's sort of back to talking about, well, it's only a very small part of our company, so it's not that meaningful Mm -hmm. and, you know, we shouldn't focus on it. I mean, how much of that is like, okay, are these guys just humans that were excited about an opportunity that didn't work out and that's okay versus, oh, they're looking to pump their stock, encourage people to think about it on like a sum of the parts. Oh, this revenue line trades at 20 or 30 Mm -hmm. times earnings and blah, blah, blah. We should get that valuation in the market. How do you sort of put those pieces together? How would you think about that? I try to be very um, non-judgmental, very neutral and stuff in terms of evaluating it with evaluating people morally and all that. that. That's not because that's good or bad, but I do think you have to shut down a lot of that, your ethical um, own feelings about stuff and try to analyze people as you think they actually are. Uh, just because you're trying to invest, you're not trying to, you know, um, judge these people one way or the other. Yeah. So some things which we don't consider in our society to be really terrible behavior could be really bad if you're an investor in it. And sometimes there are situations where their behavior could be really, really bad and you should still buy the stock. Um, we've talked about that, you know, they can't really get rid of all the land and stuff and give it to someone else if they don't have the votes and things for the, the you know, in the company. So even if they try to bleed this thing and give themselves all the money that they can, all the whatever, uh, you're still going to have the stock go up a lot. Sure. Right? Mm-hmm. Like there's situations like that. Um, there's other ones where that's not the case. And, you know, I, I would worry. So when we talk about banks, for instance, um, I don't know that morally the people who are at these failed banks did things wrong, but they took a lot of, uh, they seem not to understand that they were taking a lot of risk when they were taking a lot of risk. That's what kind of showed up in the things. When we talked about First Republic, for instance, that's what stood out in the earnings call transcripts is that I was feeling a level of pretty high risk with the situation in the bank and stuff. And they were portraying it as not. Now it's hard to know that because sometimes the way that they you get people who understand this internally themselves, but then are saying other things. Now it's dangerous just to say it because eventually you start believing it. Um, but you know, when you read histories of the failures of investment banks and things, right, they can look and say, Oh, we have we're we're gonna be out of business in you know, ten days or something, but then go out and make statements and pick up the phone and to counterparties and things and make it sound like they have explanations for everything and everything's gonna be fine. But a lot of times, you know, at least some people at the firm and stuff will be completely confused by that and will hear the stuff that's meant for external consumption. So, um, yeah, I think it's really like I think it's dangerous. And this is one where it's hard to say because these are borderline cases. But there are some stocks people really like because they're like catnip to value investors. Right. And if that was the case, but then the company doesn't know that, you know, and didn't present it that way. That's a lot more attractive to me than a company that is trying to pitch itself by positioning itself as a thing that value investors should be interested in, right? Mm-hmm. So if you're, you know, our, our name is Focus Compounding. If they think we're looking for the compounders and that's how they present themselves and stuff, mm-hmm. then it's trickier to to buy their stock because now it's trickier to understand what they are talking about and how they're, they're doing it, you know. Um, I, the great thing is if you find a company and you go, oh, the free cash flow is amazing and they don't understand what free cash flow is, right? Yeah. That's the best because they're producing it and not it's, it's something that once you make it a metric, 
right, it's no longer as reliable because now it is something that could be manipulated and stuff. There are ways to manipulate free cash flow if you thought that that's what people were focused on instead of earnings. And the most reliable things is either to pick a few different things or to pick stuff that they are not, um, you know, uh, to, to pick stuff that they're not focused on uh, explaining to you as the thing to look at, right? The, the thing that's always dangerous is, you know, is there anything wrong with adjusted EBITDA? Not necessarily if you're the ones doing the adjustment and not management, but if management says here's adjusted EBITDA and you plug that into your model, then, you know, they're the ones making the adjustments. I, I don't necessarily have a strong feeling one way or the other on any metric being better than another, but, you know, you have that problem. So, um, yeah, th- a lot of companies are too aware of the, stuff and then you get the reflexivity things right so like why do we have this terrible situation in terms of movies tv whatever costs versus benefits to the companies uh because the wall street was valuing streaming subscription subscribers right like net subscriber ads at this incredible level and they all bought into it and they have trouble explaining that that you know but sometimes you can detect it in their think in the thinking and the way they talk i remember the housing boom and it was interesting reading interviews or listening to uh, home builder CEOs on the one side understanding what was happening and the other side trying to come up with explanations for why something was happening sure. that they probably didn't believe. And oil was the same, you know, oil was the same way too. Um, they kind of understood what was happening, but also they had to buy into it. It's just the world that they were living in. So I think sometimes you can detect those things. I don't know. There's also other ones who I think are eternally optimistic, eternally pessimistic, and you kind of have to take that into account when you do these things. The other thing, I don't know. It's hard for me. I think it's very important, but when I talk to people, I think it's very difficult. Um, you just have a scent about it and stuff that you feel a certain way. Um, we invest in things that people would be turned off from. Um, like, for instance, we have invested in things where they changed their auditor a bunch. Um, honestly, I think the auditors dumping them most of the time. I mean, we have, sure. we're a fairly small fund. We have a, pro- we have problems with the giant financial institutions probably don't want our business. Um, you know, if you're among the smallest publicly traded, uh, companies that they're not really making a ton of money by doing this. Yeah. And, um, you want to be really, really cheap. Sometimes it's that you want to be really, really cheap and all of that. Um, so I don't know. We also invest in companies that, spend an incredible amount on their audits. Mm-hmm. So, mm-hmm. um, you know, uh, what was I, let's see. Um, yeah, I mean, we have companies, I would guess that we have some companies pay 10 times more for their audit than the others. And they're not 10 times the size, um, by like market cap and stuff. So it, you know, I, I don't know. There's lots of companies that people love that, you know, I don't like as much that way with the auditing. Usually it's easy enough to detect what potential problems there are and just like flag it that this is something to worry about. And I, you know, read it and stuff. Mm -hmm. Uh, Next question, Jeff, if you're not able to pick individual stocks and was forced to select ETFs and mutual funds for your own personal savings slash retirement account, how would you go about doing that? In short, what will the cash tag Jeff asset allocation look like? I don't know. I mean, it depends on if you're doing long-term things or short-term stuff and all that, right? Um, and ETFs have, you know, if you really look under the hood on a lot of ETFs, they have weird stuff in them. Mm-hmm. Um, so it, it's kind of hard to get exactly the exposures that you want. Um, I mean, probably the best thing is to do country. Um, uh, I mean, the, the best thing would probably be closed-end funds, not um, these things. But if you could do uh, co- allocations to specific countries, probably. 
um, because you can look at Schiller P and things like that, and, you know. Um, but yeah, I mean, there's things that I like enough, I guess, as a basket. But the problem is, like, if you buy the Jets or whatever it's called, uh, ETF, you know, for airline stuff, I it, it has like some, you know, because some companies make private jets and stuff, it'll throw those into the ETF, and you've got things that are like largely space and um, defense businesses and stuff thrown in there. But I don't know how much it matters, but um, there are industries that I would pick and stuff. Yeah, like I think we've said that. I mean, if I had to pick an industry, I'd probably pick airlines over other industries right now because the price on them. You could pick an energy thing if you liked that, but, you know, um, it's hard to do. A lot of these are not as simple, I think, as they appear to be. So probably an index of a um, country would be the easiest to be sure of what's in it. And you would do that based on like what it's trading at on a Schiller PE basis. And whether you liked the country and what it, you know, that sort of thing. Yeah. Mm -hmm. I think that that's fine. Schiller PE price to book price to, you know, other things. Um, but it's a big setback because, you know, like I wouldn't, I don't think I'd allocate a lot to Japan or something, even though I've said, you know, I look for specific Japanese stocks. I don't think that an index there is that attractive. I also don't think that necessarily just the cheapest one is that attractive. We talked about, you know, before the war with Russia invading Ukraine, Russia was one of the cheapest. Um, but there's probably reasons for that, you know. Mm -hmm. But, you know, sometimes there might be temporary reasons where you could figure out if it's cheap enough. I don't know if, like, Turkey's cheap and you could buy three ETFs and things. Certainly it's very hard to invest in that um, market or something. I mean, I'm not even sure that many... Um, services you use would even be willing to hold lira and stuff you know um so there may be ways that you can invest in things that are listed in other stuff uh, i mean in other countries and stuff but are like etfs or something like that to get exposure to certain countries um uh, usually people lose all their money and that kind of stuff um you know lose all the benefit that they would get from it though because foreign investors tend to do really badly in other countries you know they they go in at the wrong time and they pull out at the wrong time so um, yeah, it, it's just very hard to know. I mean, I would do, look for what's the lowest allocation to things in an index and some, like some, you know, what's the lowest weightings and avoid the ones that are the highest weightings start from the bottom up looking at that. So like if today, I don't know, materials is very small compared to, um, you know, information technology or something, then yeah, I'd start with the ones that are really small if you had to pick ETFs that are in a category and try to see if they're undervalued or something, you know. Got it. Next question regarding 10Ks. It often takes me multiple days to read an entire 10K, including notes. Yet it's my understanding Buffett has said he reads a 10K in roughly 45 minutes. It is also my understanding that he does so by knowing which sections to skip over and which sections to pay attention to. Do you read 10K so quickly as well? If so... How do you manage to complete it in such a short time? Do you actually read the entire 10K front to back, including notes, or do you skip to certain sections while focusing on other sections that are important to you? Question mark. If so, which sections do you ignore and which do you focus on and why? Uh, 10K is very a lot in length. I've read 10Ks that are about 50 pages and about 200 some. I think investment bank 10Ks are some of the longest. And, you know, there, there's others that would be odd lengths for that reason. There's been some inflation in the 10Ks where, I, you know, when I read them back in the 90s, the same company now is twice as long. A lot of that is just like standard disclosure, ESG, risks, whatever. Um, I do read it. Uh, it I, I know I read it within like 90 minutes or something because I only set aside about 90 minutes to read anything. Um, so, 
do I skip sections? Uh, well, first of all, yes, the notes are the most important part. Mm-hmm. If you were going to skip sections, it would be the things that seem like a repetition. So there's some weird 10Ks in which they seem to repeat everything twice. Yeah. Um, This is a bigger issue with some other kinds of SEC filings and some filings in other countries. But they do repeat the exact same language at times, like put it in different places. So that's an issue. The risks would be the biggest one that you could skip a lot of parts to. You would think that people would tell you, oh, the risks is what you need to flag and need to pay attention to. But a lot of times you get the risks from reading about the business description and stuff and trying to understand it. There are company-specific risks, but if you read a lot of 10Ks, you're going to see that everyone says um, that global warming is a risk, that COVID is a risk. And before COVID, it was SARS, that um, financial having access to money and stuff is a risk. And they left that in when it was easy to finance everything. And, you know, my, my favorite one with that was that was including a company which said that they had not borrowed on their credit line in the last 10 years or something mm-hmm. that their, you know, interest rates could rise and whatever a terrible risk for a company that never borrows money. Um, so, you know, risks of terrorism, risks of cyber risks of all those things and it, fine they could be risks i mean i think the sec even told people to not do this but they just do it because lawyers are willing to do this it doesn't make sense for a lot of companies to include it right like the sars thing there were some companies um movie theaters and stuff had included that years back some of them which is good because then COVID happened and look they shut down everything so it was an accurate way of them predicting that our industry could have risks others don't totally appropriate to mention in airlines and movie theaters Um, global warming is a mixed one for most companies because it can even be misleading. Like, um, if they want to talk about it, that's fine as a risk, you know, um, say an insurance company, but they also have to be honest with you that we price premiums to a certain level. And, you know, these things, we don't write insurance that lasts a hundred years at a single premium up front. So it's, you know, yeah, actually, less car accidents in the future might be as big a risk to us in our car insurance business as global warming is in our ca- um, catastrophe um, business because the, it's not our problem. Like, if we can price it correctly, our customers will pay for it, you know? It'll just become a much bigger market if there's problems. So a lot of times they're disingenuous with a lot of that. And some of the risks actually are, like, actually good things, you know? When they say risks, we might be considered... Uh, a monopoly the government might try to break yeah. us up they might limit all these sorts of things and stuff that's probably a good sign um so uh, yeah it, you know that's very redundant there's probably some other sections that are pretty redundant i look for the same things and check them off and everything so um you know uh if i'm reading the audit opinion i just have to look for the specific things that indicate a um uh an unqualified opinion and stuff and check okay um, for the companies we're looking at a lot of times they they aren't um gonna have an opinion on the risk stuff or the internal controls at bigger companies will be other stuff that way um you know and uh b- like it does depend on certain things you know i'm always going to read how they depreciate stuff i'm always going to read how they handle inventory and all that and um i'm looking for specific lines and i will check them off if it is the accounting i expect under gap for this industry and everything and if it's not then i'll highlight that fact mm-hmm. um and just go yeah, do more but research i don't know why it would take a long time see why they're doing that yeah maybe i mean i think i've said it before i mostly guess because it's not like you could answer these questions all that well usually and the company isn't going to answer them that well for you usually either mm-hmm. um so 
you you kind of highlight them, circle them, whatever, and guess why they would be doing it this way. Um, why do I think this is, and what does this mean, and how does this affect things? Um, but yeah, I mean, it might. I don't want to say it takes longer when you're reading things that are unfamiliar, but it might be a little more difficult. You know, if it's a company I'm not used to reading about that industry and it's IFRS instead of GAP or something, then yeah, there's going to be a little bit more of me trying to understand what does this accounting mean, mm, right? Mm-hmm. Like IFRS versus GAP, it has different treatment of biological assets and it has different treatment of exactly whether you charge things off directly um, or that you reserve for things in different ways and smooth it out. Um, and so if you, you know, aren't really thinking about that and how it's been, uh, how that changes the presentation of the same company under two different systems, um, you know, I just, it makes, I don't think it makes it harder. It makes it more interesting. If anything, it gives you something to latch onto. Um, I mean, one thing is don't read 10 Ks that you're not interested in the company or the, or you're never going to invest in them or something. Just picking up like it's homework is going to be hard for people, I think, um, what do you think? No, I would say that's true. I would say, I don't know if I ever heard Buffett going through in 45 minutes. I mean, may, I'm sure he can. I mean, he probably skims over things, but I think 90 minutes is like well more than enough time. Um, reading the yeah. financials. I mean, you start from the top down. I mean, first, most important thing, getting the share count right on the first page. What are the total shares outstanding? Mm-hmm. And then read the business description, the risks associated with it. But Jeff is right that they do put a lot of risks that probably aren't um, you know, relevant to their business and the financials and the notes, uh, are most important things, but you're not, we talk about this a lot. Very rarely are you going to find something that's like so important in a 10 K it seems like nowadays, like from a statistical standpoint, I mean, you will sometimes, if you're going to do the math and be like, Oh, it's a net net or, Oh, they have this amount of cash per share, but it's really, you read, you learn a lot about a business outside of the 10 K and reading about it. Right. When we talk about like box office stuff, Jeff follows the numbers. He's a consumer. He reads, mm-hmm. I mean, that's our version when Buffett talks about like, Oh, periodicals and trade magazines and stuff. I don't know too many people that read trade magazines nowadays, but there's a lot of different websites and blogs on, on certain industries that you can follow. There's podcasts of people talking about certain things going on in the industry. Um, transcripts, right. That's where, they talk a little bit more about their business um, and stuff like that. But no, I think, uh, I don't know. I don't think it should take more than a few days. The best, I mean, great 10 Ks are sometimes long because you get more information. Uh, but I mean, sometimes I'm coming across an OTC or a company in the pink sheets and their 10 K is like 20 yeah. pages. <laughs> and it's like, wow, this is great. You can really just breeze yeah. through this, you know? Um, that's the problem that we have more instead, yeah. I mean, I cross out entire sections of the 10K. That doesn't mean that I don't read it necessarily, but if you see how I mark up a 10K, there's entire things that I cross out because it's irrelevant. Mm-hmm. So it's crossed out to say, this is irrelevant, the company shouldn't be saying this, and I shouldn't pay attention to this. So if they start talking to me about things in their business that's 1% of revenue and isn't even 1% of gross profit or something, okay, you cross that mm-hmm. section out. Mm-hmm. We circle a few things and say, here are the ones that really matter. Try to zero in on that. A lot of people ask questions and things from the 10K that isn't very important. It shouldn't make a difference. Of You know, you have to pick stuff that would make a difference one way or the other about whether you'd invest in the company. Because ultimately, all this work only goes to do you buy or do you not buy. Yeah. So... 
Um, I mean, a 10K is not going to explain Buffett like probably... the 10K is not going to explain. Oh, our customer base is super loyal, and we have this ecosystem that we sell through this phone, mm-hmm. and we also have a monopoly on apps that get uploaded to this phone, and oh, that you could buy a, a MacBook and you have your AirPod. I mean, like 10Ks, they're not going to speak like that. So I just think a lot of this other uh, research you have to do is just to really learn about the business and its mode, its durability, that's not going to be in, in the 10 K. Now you could get a tell that there's something there, high gross margins, high, yeah. you know, uh, turns, uh, you know, long-term profitability, um, the stability of the margins over time. These are things that tell you a lot about the business that you can learn about. And we do that when we go through quick FS, right? Like, Oh, okay. Um, you know, the, the inventory that turns over their inventory a good amount or uh, has low gross margins, but high return on invested capital, that's a tell or high invested capital and, and, um, you know, high gross margins. I mean, there's just little tells that you could pick from a quantitative uh, standpoint, but that doesn't tell you about what you really want to know, right? Customer and competitor decision-making the position in the industry, why it's going to last and stuff like that. Yeah. And I'd say most of the time you can't tell for sure. Um, you know, uh, and a lot of, for very good stock and stuff, I can probably make the decision just based on reading 110K. And for very good stock, I'm sure that Buffett can do that. Um, but it's based on a lot of guesswork about what is presented in the 10K and what that could mean. Um, and not as much direct information that you have. However, you know, a lot of direct information on things isn't necessarily all that helpful because it really matters on what the few variables are and how strong they are. And if the signal's really strong on some things, then it doesn't necessarily matter a great deal um, for other stuff um, that you could find out, and it's not worth all your time that way. Uh, but just like the idea of how long it takes to read the 10K and everything, you know, that's worrying. So I would just read it, get through it, toss it out. I mean, you know, the vast majority of them aren't going to lead to a decision to buy or not buy. So, I mean, that's why I say, you know, set a timer, like I said, like 90 minutes. Okay, if you can't finish it in 90 minutes and just throw it away at that point, you know, just just stop reading. Um, I think it would help. I, I don't think a lot of people are going to do this, but to print it out and to have a pen in your hand taking notes and to have a calculator. I know not a lot of people are as comfortable guessing with things. I realize that that's something that I do. I write all over it. That way you'll notice that a lot of times I say it's more than this or it's close to this or whatever because I'm doing it in my head. But I know that lots of people aren't as comfortable with that. Buffett definitely is. You know, truncate this number, round this to that, multiply this together. You get a number that's close to it. That's all that matters. Move on. Um, I do that. Buffett clearly does that the way he talks about things. So uh, I think some people are uncomfortable with that. And so they're not just taking numbers and multiplying them together and doing this to find out ratios of things the company doesn't give you. So I'd strongly recommend using a calculator for that so that you do feel comfortable that way, you know? Mm -hmm. So you go, okay, what's the operating profit per location then? You know, companies don't tell you that, but they tell you their operating profit or their whatever. And they tell you the locations, you know, I mean, I've done that for companies where they say our four four wall EBITDA is this, that, you know, some write-up says, and I'll, I'll just mention, you know, okay, but they've, you know, when you then divide their numbers that you try to come up with that into that, they've never hit their model or they always hit their model or whatever, but People generally will use stuff from the investor presentation, even if the company has never actually achieved that exactly. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Alrighty, so we're just going to transition over to uh, Twitter now. Um, follow me on Twitter at, at Focus Compound to ask questions in the future. Um, and the first question says, can you talk about your thoughts on the Bruce Greenwald approach to valuation, asset value, 
current franchise value, future franchise value. And this is his model that he has. I think if you actually Google Bruce Green, uh, Greenwald, Columbia Business School class or something like that, mm-hmm. there's like a transcripts of it. And this is what he talks about. I think there's videos online as well. But any general thoughts to breaking down a company, thinking about like asset value, earnings, power value, total value? Yeah. So um, first of all, uh, uh, this is not my kind of thing to do because I don't come up with exact valuations for companies. Don't do projections of the future and all that. And this is obviously very highly formalized in terms of being theoretical to try to apply something that can go to all sorts of things. The value of a company should be its highest and best use, right? So when people ask like, how would you value a lot of companies or what value would you be comfortable with them at? It is first liquidation value. Then it's their value in, um, uh, like their asset value, which would be like a current value and then like a tangible book value and things like that. Um, what's the replacement cost of it and all that. And then only for some companies is it have anything to do with earning power to me. So all the things we try to invest in and stuff, we look for it to be the earning power. And then it's a question of the durability of that, of how far that goes into the future, how much they can invest and, um, uh, you know, uh, whether how far it is above their cost of capital, right? Which I'm not worrying about what your cost of capital is. I'm just assuming that it's a lot like everyone else's in the stock market and they're not going to use leverage and stuff. Um, I've, you know, I've never looked at stuff from his class. I've obviously read his books, uh, you know, value from um, uh, Graham to Buffett and beyond or whatever, like the updated mm-hmm. one. And um, he also is co-author on some books and I've read those. Um, yeah. What are your thoughts on Greenwald? Uh, I don't have too many thoughts on him. He has written a couple of good books. So I, I did read that book. I think he has another book, Competition Demystified, is uh, another book. Yeah, is that a co-author one? Yeah. yeah. Um, I like that book. It reminded me a lot of uh, like Michael Porter's books, I mean, similar topic and stuff. But he has his own framework on mm-hmm. that as well. Uh, from the Buffett, from Graham to Buffett and beyond, that book I know has a few case studies, which were great to read about like WD-40. I think every time I look at a WD-40, I actually yeah, think of, yeah. I think of Bruce Greenwald in the book. <laughs> um, but no, I don't, I don't know. I mean, I think you're right. Like he's taking something that and trying to apply a very theoretical framework. It is, uh, he's teaching value investing and sure, I think it's okay. I don't really have an opinion on it, honestly, one way or the other. Yeah. And, and he's certainly moved much more to like, um, I mean, now he's no longer teaching there. Someone, I mean, I don't know if he's a professor emeritus or something, but you know, the class being taught by someone else. But um, he certainly moved much more to the compounding type thing that way. Um, you know, my, my feeling is you have to move all the time with what whatever um, opportunities that you see there. So uh, we're willing to do either sort of thing. Um, but I think the big important one is, like I said, with the highest and best use thing. And I think Graham even recognized that and stuff. Graham never believed that growth stocks should sell at you know, some low price to book or something. But um, I think that analyzing most companies on both bases is um, makes some sense, obviously. So the the way of doing it, like as a tiered system where, you know, there's some things that add more and more value, if that's what you end up with, does make sense. Um, but the actual calculations, like from those books and stuff, it involves a heavy dose of assumptions that could prove to be very wrong in terms of the actual math involved, but low confidence in anything that the math puts out. Mm-hmm. He's big on like competition, obviously, because you're forecasting in the future. I mean, do you think people almost give too much credit to businesses having some sort of competitive advantage? 
where it's like, well, actually, they don't really have a competitive yeah. advantage. They're just good at what they do and they put up good numbers. But no, there really isn't too much of a moat here. I don't know. Sometimes I feel both ways. It depends on the person. I, I mean, I think that they're pretty dogmatic sometimes. I think some people assume that something can't be a particularly good business and some people uh, that they don't exist and stuff. And some people assume that there's these things that have moats and all of that. Um, the important thing for you is just figuring out, you know, into the future, what the earnings will be versus what you could get somewhere else. It's just, to me, it's just opportunity cost versus what you would get in this. And so, but it, this can lead to really ridiculous things. Not that he's doing this, um, Greenwald, but you know, you'd have a DCF, so you assume some terminal growth rate or something. The only reason why you're doing that it's simpler than dealing with the issue of like, okay, it approaches a limit of um, the return on capital being equal to the return on capital to your opportunity costs and stuff is basically what you're saying. Well, I mean, what will actually happen in the real world usually is that something that's earning Walmart like 30% returns on equity or whatever in the 70s comes down until the point where it's at like 10% and not using leverage and stuff. And so the, there's really not value in the growth in the future. But how people model that out is like, oh, it'll grow at 2% a year you know, or something so that I can pull it down below the rate that I need, you know? Um, so there's lots of calculations like that, that you're kind of using numbers that you have. Um, it, I don't know. Like, like I said, I mean, I think it, it's, the, it, it matters in some cases, but just like the thing with the auditor, I would just look at the real outliers. So if you, if you think this is the one company out of 20, Right, that any group of twenty you look at, there's probably nineteen that are ever less competitively advantaged than this one. Then, yeah, I think it matters, and I think you look at it um, on that basis, like to try to ca calculate with the understanding that it has a moat and everything. But unless you think that it's that far out in terms of being an outlier, I don't know that I'd spend a lot of time worrying about the competitive advantage stuff. Um, a, a moat would mean it's five percent or less of the companies out there, probably. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I would agree with that. Uh, next question, Jeff mentioned in his past memos that he thought about hedging the yen to USD with his Japanese net nets, given the mm -hmm. yen appeared to be overvalued versus USD at the time. Yeah. He didn't end up hedging. Given the strength in USD at the moment, how would he think about the hedging question today? Oh, don't hedge. So nothing's changed. I mean, you know, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, and I didn't hedge and it was a big problem, huge drag. Still did very well, but yeah, I think the drag was 20% a year annualized or something over the exact period that I held it or something. It was tremendous. It, it reduced returns from like 50% in local terms to like 30% or something. Um, yeah, and it seemed really overvalued. The, the, nothing seems, I mean, not nothing. There's probably some Nordic currencies or something that are expensive, but um, virtually nothing seems expensive versus the um, dollar right now. So to me, for American investors going out in the world be happy that you can own it and not have to worry about hedging if you don't want to mm -hmm. uh let's see buffett has stated effectively ideally you want a business that engenders more and more growth while requiring less and less capital how would you go about confirming that with the business in quantitative terms well i mean what matters is the return on incremental capital um so the way that i calculate that is i figure out how much i think it's going to grow and then I don't look at capital as like a tax on that, basically. You know, I, I've said this before, but I don't actually, even though I talk about return on equity and stuff in this podcast, that's never how I look at it. What I say is, okay, do I think it will grow 5% a year or something? And do I think it'll do that without actually adding um, to its assets and stuff like that? Um, sometimes they break it down for you, what their plans are for the future. 
there's a company transcat it's, it's turned out to be a very successful stock but not for the reasons exactly that i thought um or maybe for the reasons i thought but people anticipating it or something but that's an example where i looked at the company and i said oh what they're pivoting to and what they're going to do i think they're going to be able to use less and less um capital relative to the what they're going to generate in returns um they already had a lot of places to recalibrate things and stuff it's a calibration company uh, for things that need precision instrument stuff. So probably like life sciences, maybe aerospace defense type applications. Um, you know, those could be some of their larger customers from what I remember or what's likely, you know? Um, and yeah, the stock's done very well and I should have picked it for that reason. But if you look, I think at quick FS, the like multiple expansion is pretty big and stuff. So what you would want to see generally, or what I'd want to see is especially there should be some increase in gross profits um relative to net tangible assets used that i think is one of the most important ones so if you can look at that that would just be like is the equity stuff growing or the assets growing in general um the assets the shareholders are likely to have to finance um and is that asset growth happening without a lot of gross growth in gross profit um sales growth so a company that's growing sales and gross profit is um expanding and stuff that would just you know make it possible for you to look and say, okay, this is getting more attractive. Um, I can point to examples where it went the other way, you know, and I looked at it and noticed that it was going the other way. Um, I think, you know, Cambria in the UK was sold out and stuff, but people asked like, you know, why would I prefer Virtu over Cambria or something? You know, part of it is the price, but also it was just looking forward and saying, okay, how much are they putting into new CapEx and stuff that they're doing? And how much do I think that will drive things versus Virtu? It just was a possibility that maybe they wouldn't have to put a lot more stuff in to get somewhat higher returns. Um, recent years, Amazon's like fallen off a cliff in terms of these kinds of measures. So you can't imagine that it would provide much return, like growth in the future, like growing your actual value. Because you can see that, you know, if we look at Amazon, their assets have just jumped by a huge amount while the business hasn't jumped like that. So that's COVID. And, um, you know, it is literally, it was deploying money on the size of like, you know, like I, I said, I think at the time, I mean, it's deploying money that's making it like the size, the, the incremental amount they were deploying during COVID to now or something is like the size of a railroad. It's incredible, the amount of um, that. So what were total assets? They might have some accounting things in there too, but right before COVID, let's say end of 2019 or something. 225 billion. And what are they today? Today we're at 464 billion. So it's call it double mm -hmm. a little bit more. Right. Which means that in since COVID Amazon has deployed more capital than in all the time before COVID. Mm -hmm. I mean, you can just judge what Amazon is culturally. You can look at their financial statements and stuff. Um, it's hard to believe that they could get a very good return on that to me. Um, whereas much earlier in their history, it was very different that way. Um, so that, you know, Amazon was not a bad looking business from early on it changed a lot, but it wasn't a bad looking business in that if they could eventually get some scale, it would make sense. You know, one that we talked about, uh, that I don't want people to go into and stuff. Cause it seems to me on the verge of, you know, it has seemed for a while on the verge of bankruptcy is Carvana. But I will admit that Carvana had a business model that looking at the numbers, if they're, you know, um, I could see how it could get to a point where it could make sense. Mm -hmm. I'm not sure that I buy in that there'll be huge adoption of it and stuff versus other things, but definitely looking at it, you could say, okay, the numbers are getting somewhat better or they were until the, they, um, recently they've been 
very distorted with the pandemic and everything. But like, you know, you could see that if you had an infinite runway that people keep financing you, that this business would make sense. Mm -hmm. Um, And it requires a big upfront type spend versus in the back and not as um, attractive that way. Um, uh, So I guess the other, it's even simpler than that in that like, okay, you've already built out the site or something and now they're going to a lot of people using it. You've built the software. There can be a lot of people using it. So there's big upfront costs. And then now is it can be more attractive. The easiest one is just that you're raising price, Mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. But it's hard to judge that. How far could C's raise price? Would it have grown pounds um, sold if it hadn't raised prices as much as it did? Um, People talk about, you know, we talk about movie theaters. People say attendance declined from the 90s through whatever um, till before COVID by like 2%. When you adjust for age and when you take into account price, it's not evidence that demand declined. It's evidence that they were, you know, I mean, like you have sometimes had 7% price increases in terms now that you had different things. You had more recliners and different kinds of tickets and whatever. But I mean, it wasn't dollar for dollar the same thing you were getting. But if we raise the price of any product by 7% a year and demand stays stable uh, and um, uh, this quantity sold stays stable, we think demand's probably going up every mm-hmm. year, mm-hmm. you know? So it's hard to tell. Um, yeah. So there's a lot like that. There's some that we've invested in recently since COVID where I've been worried about that of like, okay, they're getting it all from price increases. But with enough inflation and stuff, price increasing is a lot more attractive than real growth um, in a more inflationary environment and stuff. So. So price increase is obviously the easiest if you can increase price without having a big drop in volume. Um, and the other one is, you know, operating leverage. You are getting increases in volume, but you've already built out stuff. Mm-hmm. Uh, next question. What would you do differently if you had to file 13 Fs? I mean, I guess we'd invest in big companies or something. I don't know. I mean, if we had to file 13 Fs, I mean, so if we have to file 13 Fs now, we have a lot of things that aren't listed on 13 F, which would be part of what would drive me crazy. And people would say, this is your portfolio. And it's not the portfolio, yeah. mm-hmm. but, um, you know, so that's, but that's true for everyone in, in some ways. Um, it's true extremely in some that make no, you know, like people do, here's what Oak tree owns. Here's what, um, Klarman mm-hmm. owns and stuff. And that's not what they, they own that, but their portfolio is way bigger and out and totally not in that, those categories. So if we had to initially, that's what would happen that most of what we own is not 13 F stuff. Um, it, it wouldn't qualify for being, um, having to be disclosed. So you wouldn't see those securities listed, but it means that you would see all of our more actively traded domestic type stuff, mm-hmm. um, which would be an inaccurate picture of the portfolio. But yeah, I guess you'd invest in bigger things and stuff. I mean, a lot of the stuff that we're in, if it, if people actually followed us and had the 13 F, then I'd worry because, you know, Buffett talks about it. I mean, most don't, but Buffett says like, these are trade secrets and stuff. And you know, um, you want to give a, as little information about them as possible. So why do you think other investors don't feel that way? Well, I don't know if you're a very, very small investor, I guess it doesn't matter if you, especially if you're investing in bigger things though, for me, I mean, even when I was pretty small investor, I wanted all the volume in something, you know, like I didn't want anyone else knowing about it. So it did matter to me. I mean, I, I, this, my portfolio was one, one hundredth the size of the company or something probably at one time. Um, so I guess people would normally say, Oh, what does it matter then? Right. If I'm trying to buy a company that's, let's say it's more than one, maybe one hundredth is a little, it's not quite 
what people would do. But say it was a $300 million company and they had a $300,000 portfolio. They would say, oh, it doesn't matter. You know, it's nothing's going to get in my way that way. Um, yeah, I don't know. I mean, one of the most successful investors of all times felt that way. Look, Buffett and Graham have a lot of the same ideas and things. Buffett was a lot more successful than Graham. Buffett was very jealous of uh, his ideas. Graham was happy to spread them around and stuff, you know, and, and Buffett was obviously more successful applying some of the same intellectual stuff. Um, yeah. Uh, I mean, it's just, it is how I feel and it's how, not how a lot of people feel. Mm. What do you think about it? Yeah. I mean, I think it's, I mean, it's like, simple because it, yeah. it's not a, a real, a realistic picture of the entire portfolio. I just thinking off the cuff here in, in the fund, I mean, there would be no securities on there. And if we own like one stock or whatever people, we'd get emails from people, probably not even LPs, but it'd be emails from other people being like, why do you guys only own one stock? Why do you, you know, follow this? Or mm -hmm. what if you're trying to take advantage of a situation, which I think you were going to say right now, where buying the volume is is very important to you and you have to follow 13F. And uh, let's say it's a less liquid thing. So you're buying over time. And by the time the 13F comes out, now it's all out there and you still want to buy. I mean, yeah, that who who the hell would want that? I mean, if you see, if you're trying to invest in a, buy a house or, or invest in an area for real estate, yeah, you don't go telling everybody how great of an opportunity it is because you don't want to compete with them. <laughs> you don't want other people to go and pr place more bids. Right. right. Now, if you can get into it and the other people push it up after you, then I guess that's why some people are like, it's fine and I don't, I don't mind. Yeah. Um, but like I said, even when I was a very small investor, I worried about that because, I mean, if you're transacting things that have minimal volume, like Buffett got started in doing and stuff, and that we do, um, you learn pretty fast the importance of that. Uh, it, the truth is it doesn't matter with some stocks. The kind of things we did for singular diligence, it mostly wouldn't matter. I could talk all day about Frost when it moved the stock and it wouldn't matter if it did because even if it, it had some advantages some ways, people would have to look into it and, and you know figure it out and stuff. But if I just spewed out the names of some net nets or something, it would move them mm -hmm. because there's some things that are so simple that once you explain it, all you're doing is having people find those things. Um, so I wrote some things about netness cause I had to, it was a requirement for work I was doing employed by someone else and hated it for that reason. Um, cause it moves the stocks, not just cause they're illiquid and stuff, but also because people then just look at the balance sheet and see what you're talking mm -hmm. about. The, you know, Japanese things and stuff you, you just look at and you're like, Oh, they're trading below enterprise value. And the, he says the company's fine or something, mm -hmm. you know, mm -hmm. I mean, there's some things where if it seemed real simple that way. You know, the stuff that I would do that seems like what you see on like Clark Street value or something that can really move. Yeah. Um, if it's more of a quantitative, qualitative thing, it's a little different, but still there it's dangerous because if I talk about some tiny, tiny bank that I think is good, it's not, I shouldn't do that. That, that will affect the price in the long run. It will create more people who will buy that kind of thing. Mm -hmm. Um, so they're just, yeah, it, I, it would change things a lot. I don't know the answer to all of it. You know, the issue is that we don't turn over the, my, my big issue with the 13F is that we don't turn over our portfolio a lot and don't plan to. We'll see how much that turns out to be true or not. But, you know, at some point it's like, okay, we charge very high fees. We charge hedge fund fees, you know, zero and 15. Um, so to do that to someone where, I mean, think about that. To do that to something where it's like, okay, well, you could own this stock yourself. You know, I mean, it doesn't mean that it wouldn't work out well. And if it was something like where I say, okay, airlines are cheap, but then maybe they get some other price and you sell them. Or I said something about Cinemark at like $10 was cheap, but then maybe at like 20 or something, it's not as attractive, whatever. 
that kind of thing. Okay. And you're turning over the portfolio, maybe not as big a deal of the 13 F, but if we buy something in 2020 and we still own in 2023, which by the way, is a lot of our portfolio probably. I mean, most things that we bought, we haven't sold. So, I mean, new money has come in and we bought other things, but for the most part, if we bought something three years ago, we odds are better than not that we still own it. Well, you know, you can create that for yourself and not pay us. So there is, I don't know, an ethical thing to that. Like, I don't know that I want to collect fees on something that people know. If people knew we were going to own a few big cap stocks or whatever they could own themselves, or they knew exactly what we own from the 13F, then why are you charging fees and stuff too? So Mm -hmm. if you're not charging fees, then how are you going to make a living doing Mm -hmm. this? I think I need to update you on uh, what high hedge fund fees are. Um, I don't think zero and 15 is that high compared to the industry. But next question, could Jeff walk through an airline financials to show why he thinks they are so cheap? So um, what I will say is that you can go to episode uh, 383 and 382, and we basically walk through all of that um, and spend a few hours doing that. And it's probably even more relevant today because I think airlines have only gotten cheaper since that uh, podcast. Uh, So we spent a lot of time going over that. So check out those two uh, podcasts. Um, let's see. Somebody asked, you talked about how most great investors only do a normal fund structure for maybe 12 years. Have you considered moving your fund to a permanent vehicle slash some other option? Uh, no, we haven't considered anything like that, but it hasn't been 12 years. I mean, yeah, there's some danger that you burn out and stuff over time. You know, um, I mean, most funds probably don't grow big enough and like take off. They They don't you know, get to that size and success. Right. And so that's why most of them would fail, I would guess in the early days. But if you're going to go on for a long time, uh, yeah, it can get hard. So we'll see what happens, but we're definitely not at that point yet. Um, but yeah, I mean, you know, those were people with a lot of, uh, success. If you have a ton of success, both just the market going up, you doing it, whatever, a lot of compounding, plus you're getting inflows, then it does either forge its own anchor in terms of your growth slowing down and stuff, or you just can't handle that happening. And you say, okay, I don't want my results to be bad versus other things. Um, Not the problem that we have now. If anything, I'd say the problem is just, you know, being honest about, look, the, the entire investing landscape is difficult. And so we focus on absolute returns and stuff. We hope to give you decent absolute returns and they might be good relative returns in the long run. But just it's tough, you know, that way. So it's not a problem of having too much assets or something like that. It's a problem of just high prices and, you know, for for stocks generally. That's the thing I'd worry about more now. Mm -hmm. Uh, What does it mean when an insurer's premiums is growing faster than its float? What does float to premiums tell you about an insurer? Oh, uh, that's really complicated without seeing it in front of me. Um, so it depends on, obviously, if you have written premiums or you have earned premiums as part of it, there's a mismatch there. Um, but then also it would just be how fast they're paying things out and the kinds of things that they're writing. So like the, um, duration of, um, how long it takes to pay out things and losses and stuff. So usually when you have very high float versus your premiums, I mean, you're taking in more money, more upfront and paying in more losses later. Like there is, there are some structures to things where you could have a single upfront premium, for instance, and then, um, you could pay it out much later. And obviously those would be high. And then there's some things where you have losses where you pay them out slower over time. Um, so 
you can, if it's in one line of business or something, it's much easier to understand. If it's in a ton of different lines, it's much harder to understand this part of it. Um, and that can be very confusing. But yeah, if you're trying to generate a lot of float, you could do it without necessarily having a great combined ratio if you were generating huge amounts of float. Um, you know, we, we talk a lot about the combined ratio, but the easiest way to have a really low combined ratio, like 90% all the time, is to generate virtually no float, to be honest. It's much easier because there's much more competition in business that's going to create a lot mm -hmm. of float generally, mm -hmm. right? So that's why you have it. So it's not a completely fair thing. I think it's safer to have a low combined ratio and not as much float, but having a bunch of float is useful at times and was very helpful to Berkshire in the early days. Um, but I think it's just the kind of business that you're writing probably. I've pointed that out. I think when we're talking about title insurers or something, one thing is that um, a pretty small percentage of their losses would be, you know, like expected. They have a certain amount of losses, right? But they might only expect 30% to be paid within one year and then like, you know, 50% over two or three years and 75% over three or four years and 90% by year five or six. Um, so I think sometimes when people look at that, they're like, okay, let's apply the whole amount today as if they would lose that or something. But actually it's a pretty useful thing to have that in terms of the value where some insurers that it would be a lot closer to hundred percent within two years. Mm. Somebody said Graham suggested being selecting between being an enterprising and defensive investor. First, what do you think about that idea generically? Second, what strategies or ideas would you add to either category or both as a modern day update? I don't know if I would change it in categories and stuff. Uh, yes, I love that idea. I think that it was a great idea that he had, and that's what I would say to people generally. Um, most people I know should be the defensive investor, right? Not the enterprising, because they're not going to go out and find things themselves. But that doesn't mean that you can't still apply ideas in a way that makes sense um, just without doing a lot of work, right? If you're saying it takes you hours to read 10Ks, you should be a defensive investor, not an enterprising, because you're not going to find these things yourself. But that doesn't mean you can't buy things, Um so maybe a defensive investor could do some cloning and stuff. Um, I don't know. Um, there's obviously lots of things quantitatively that are easier to find now than when Graham was doing it. So you could look at those lists and things. Um, but other than that, I still generally like his ideas um, on the defensive investor stuff. Yeah. So I, I don't think it's a bad idea, for instance, for a defense investor to insist on like, say, a Graham number or whatever, like 22 or so, like don't go over a P of about 15, don't go over a price to book of one and a half. Um, and then just find the businesses you like or something in that category. Um, yeah. Do either of you try and set KPIs or similar for investments to track that are in line with the thesis? Can you give some examples if so, and what would make good or bad ones? If not, then interested in how you monitor holdings ongoing. What do you look for? Basically, how do we track the thesis, monitor stock after we bought it? Yeah, I mean, I just have an idea of what will be the likely kind of range of future events. And if it's near that, then I'm okay with it. And if not, then it's a problem. Um, I think I mentioned that, you know, like say we own something where I didn't expect a lot of volume growth, growth but I did expect price growth. That would be the things that I'd be tracking carefully. But, you know, the company discloses a lot of that, so that wouldn't be a problem. Um, for other things, it's hard to say. Like, you know, banks or something, again, it's like the you try to have an understanding of what's going on in the economy and what's likely and look for those outlier kind of things. Um, I'm not, I mean, we own some things probably that have no charge offs right now or no, no non-performing assets. Right. And I've seen lots of write-ups of people for small banks that have no non-performing assets. I don't think it matters right now. It depends on what you're in, but you shouldn't have any non-performing assets unless you're doing, you know, 
loans that are less tied into the overall economy. It'll just all happen at the same time in some categories. So, um, but if you had very low non-performing assets and other people had two and a half percent and stuff now, then it would be really meaningful. So you look for that kind of thing. Um, you compare it off of other banks and stuff. If your deposits are going down 1% now, I'm not that worried if most banks are going down 4%. But in times when the economy was growing quickly, I'd be very worried about that, right? So um, it's that kind of thing, like benchmark it off of other things and what am I surprised by? I don't know, what would you say? Yeah, I would say that's true. I would say we also keep track of just things that go on within the business and news that comes out and a lot of it's noise, but you're just looking for signal, right? Uh, if you own... Um, you know, uh, a company that has a few key locations, it's okay, I think, to track what's going on at those locations, um, stuff mm -hmm. like that. So yeah, I would say there's things that we track, but it's more so like what Jeff had said, uh, you know, there's a range of outcomes that he has, and it's kind of making sure you're on track with that. Yeah, like say we own Netflix, we don't. But if we did, then we'd be real concerned about like how's the ad tier doing and what's going to be the effects of the password sharing crackdown and stuff. If that happens in a particular quarter, I don't think we're going to be scared that, oh, subscribers fell by some incredible amount if we knew that that was going to be something they were going to do that quarter. But if it was something that was happening without any explanation in some other period, then we'd be really concerned about it, mm -hmm. you know? So um, like revenue dropping at Google or something in a period where we know from ad agencies all saying the market's bad or something. Wouldn't yeah, worry us. Surprising. But like if it happened, in, you know, but if it happened another time, it would be. So you try to get context from everything else and see if the story that they're telling makes sense and it's kind of what you expected. But you're kind of always updating every quarter in your mind where you kind of expect the numbers to come in. I don't sit down and pencil it out, but I have an idea before I look at the quarterly report what kind of things I'm going to see. And you just zero in on those items that deviate from that a lot. The most part, I think what I've complained about and stuff is like deviations in operating expenses and stuff, even when they have a good quarter, right? Because sometimes there's things where that surprises me and where I'm not happy about that. And then it'll hurt you later. Um, so sometimes you focus on things that I guess maybe other people wouldn't worry as much about, but that concerns me, you know. But like I mentioned, Frost wouldn't concern me if they had some growth in those kinds of expenses if they're opening new branches and new markets and saying that they're doing that or something, mm -hmm. you know, but in normal times, if, if it was too high a rate, then I'd be worried about it. Even if it, earnings were going mm -hmm. up. So we have two questions on, uh, car dealerships and car prices. First one, what are his thoughts on car prices and dealerships today? Has the capital cycle turned? And then the next one was, what does Jeff think about current car inventory levels? And what is the foresee for near term and medium term car prices and inventory levels? Yeah, um, this has been interesting. Prices have come down, but they haven't come down as much to the levels that they were at before. Um, this is kind of what I was talking about with talking about inflation and all that, where there's some stocks where I've gone, oh, should I have been more optimistic or whatever about them? That they probably aren't going to go back to exactly the earnings that they had before COVID. Um, there's a real affordability issue when we talk about things like CarMart and stuff that I think is an issue. Um, if you have higher interest rates, then that with the higher prices and everything is going to lead to very long duration and just hard affordability at the low end for people. So I think that's going to happen. Um, but it's mainly a supply and demand thing long term, like we talk about. So honestly, I'm not as worried about houses in the U.S. or cars in the U.S. and in other countries, too, with cars. Houses, I don't know. Um, as people maybe because the actual underlying 
supply situation didn't change in that big a way. And um, do I believe eventually that they'll uh, get back to having too much inventory and stuff versus what they're doing now? Yeah. Like, I don't think that they'll learn from this and that never do it again. But I think it'll take time and everything. So I think the business will be somewhat better for a while than it used to be. Um, in that supply will be more, uh, supply will be lower from the manufacturers and stuff. Um, mm-hmm. you know, but like in, in some consumer packaged goods things, we saw low promotion activity last few years and it's starting to tick back up. That might mean in 2025 or something, it gets back to levels of 2019, but it's not like I don't believe that they'll have coupons in grocery stores anymore. Um, I think that they'll slowly get back to doing that and probably in the next cycle or something, cars will get back to you know, levels in terms of inventory that, that, um, we saw before, but it was really bad. Actually, they were not making money and stuff at all. The the car makers, let's not talk about the car dealers, but the car makers in the period from the two thousands through to COVID, they were kind of not behaving in a, as rational way as they could. So it could get better. Mm -hmm. We have a few questions on selling. Someone says, what is Jeff's philosophy on selling? Does he apply the principle that you should sell once the stock hits a price that you would no longer buy at? question mark or is he willing to continue holding to continue holding an overvalued position provided the fundamentals remain intact slash are improving yeah opportunity cost so i'm willing to sell as soon as i have a better idea even if it's the stock isn't um expensive or something if we constantly it's even cheaper but yeah i will hold a quote-unquote overvalued position i don't know that there's a lot in our portfolio that like the general public would consider overvalued but not as cheap as what we would buy um, until I have a new good idea, especially if I like the business a lot better. I don't think it's a good idea to sell out of a business that's doing well and that you like and you're comfortable with. But any level of like increased catastrophic risk or something like that, you might sell out of, you know, mm-hmm. um, to hold cash. But generally, we try to sell one stock to buy another. If we sell one stock to hold cash, it's probably because of an increase in our our feeling about the risk of the position, not just that the price has gone up a little bit. Mm-hmm. How do you evaluate management compensation? Can you walk through your process? We don't have any you know, highly technical way of doing that. Um, I don't know that it matters as much as people think it does. You know, I try to get an overall read on management and an idea about what they're thinking and and why they do the things they do. But at a lot of big companies and stuff, it's basically they're, they're compensated much the same way as everyone else. Um, in fact, using consultants and stuff sometimes. So, um, you know, we'd like if they own a lot of stock, obviously, and that the stock that they own is very large compared to their, uh, salary and we'd like if they um don't really sell stock a lot um but you know in terms of the actual compensation being tied to like bonuses and th- you know to stock options and things like that um i guess more of a weighting into equity would be something that we like better mm-hmm. um you know I- i've been in stocks where management's quite greedy with them on my, uh, how much they make and stuff but yeah it's it's not a big deal to the stock, to be honest, if it's a huge company. I mean, they could be incredibly greedy, and it, it doesn't take that much from you. So if they're also very competent, it, it works out fine. I'd rather greedy and very competent than, um, than you know, selfless and incompetent. Mm-hmm. We can end on this. What are the top three or five financial concepts you think every capital allocator needs to know to be able to think critically and be effective when it comes to investing? Question mark. He said... For example, time value of money, opportunity cost, price value, et cetera. Opportunity cost is the most important. Um, I think confidence is the second most important. So, you know, 
understanding the difference between risk and uncertainty. Something could be uncertain, but you know, po- that it could have high upside or a high downside, both and stuff. But um, that's a very important one um, because most things that we see are not people having an unrealistic idea of what opportunity cost is or what returns could be in something. It's having a wildly um, inaccurate idea of confidence level, right? So like they figure that, yes, there's some scenario under which they hit their 15% EBITDA threshold or whatever they have in mind for this. Um, and they've calculated that carefully with their weighted average cost of capital. They're going to use some whatever, you know, debt and stuff for this. And this all makes sense. And it's going to add value, but they have no idea what the confidence level is. If this is a nine out of 10 or one out of 10. Um, and so, you know, unfortunately that happens a lot. So I think that's very, very important. Um, I would also, I mean, the most important concept in economic story is marginality. So I think that that also applies here. Um, the, the understanding that they need to have about the level of, you know, the incremental concept. When I talk to most people, they talk about averages and, um, things in a way that isn't necessarily that helpful. Uh, most investors, when I talk to them about like what their returns will be in the future. So just because you have a certain average level of return on something doesn't mean that that bears any relationship to the incremental level that you're going to have. And part of that is calculations, because I know the reason that they don't like to look at incremental is because it gives you nonsense answers for any moment, right? It would be like if we're taking a car trip across the country and we're saying, okay, at a moment where you hit the brakes or you speed up, we're going to measure, you know, like the instantaneous velocity there by carving it into this moment of, you know, half a second or something. And that's basically what you're doing when you're looking at a single quarter or a year or something, right? Amazon might have great ideas for what their returns will be in the future. Um, I think it's been long enough with COVID that we know that it's probably not going to turn out to be a bonanza for what they put in. But no matter what, it was never going to be in the quarter that they put it in or the year they put it in. It's investing now for something in the future. But you have to do that sort of thing to look at what the incremental return is. We talked about like Southwest and the great history they had or Walmart or whatever. You have to understand how low the incremental returns have to be to pull down an average. You know, Berkshire's Kager, right? Like um, if you look at that stock, how high it was at one point and everything, to have it pulled down as much as it has been from the late 90s to today means that it's compounding at a much, much lower rate. And uh, I don't know. There's a huge difference between averages and, um, you know, shorter periods, ones like that. So... I don't know if people like think about that and whatever, but it's a very important concept to think about. You know, um, (laughs) we talked about the black hole thing. That's something that's always overlooked in like the space stuff is like, okay, well, people are just like, say a speed and think, okay, well, you could go up to, we could, you know, take something and speed up to whatever this speed is, right? But what they never take into account is like how fast you have to accelerate to get to that. You could go very slowly to ramp up to that speed. But you'd have a very bad experience if you tried to accelerate very fast to that. And just that concept is really important in, a, in any of these things. I think the difference between incremental levels and average levels. Um, because it's only the incremental that matters. You know, it's kind of like where I say the opportunity cost. One thing that I talk a lot about in emails that people maybe don't talk enough about on the podcast is um, I try to stress that all that matters for Buffett said this too. So I'm, I'm, although this sounds like it's um, heresy for a value investing thing, all that matters to you is the future for your the stock, right? It really does not matter what it earned in the past. It it, it has no meaning for what you're going to get as returns. It does not matter what 
Coke's previous returns on capital were. It matters what they're going to be once you own the stock, you know, in the future. That's what matters. So that's what we're worried about. And um, having really good returns in one business line or something and then going into a lot of other ones that drag that down, a lot of times people look at that and go like, oh, it's fine. It's not that big a deal. They have high enough returns on, on capital. They must be a pretty good business or whatever. Some of Buffett's best um, decisions, cap allocation-wise, were in the very early years of Berkshire. The stock had trouble, the, the business had trouble getting to a 12% return on equity in those years. Um, but he got it by taking out cash from other things, basically bringing down inventory and stuff in the textile business, putting it into stocks, going into buying insurance and banking. He took something that had cumulatively had basically a 0% return over the last 10 years or something and turned it into something that was capable of doing 12% and then higher from then on. At that point, they, you might, I don't think anyone was looking at that and saying this genius capital allocation, but it was genius capital allocation. Um, and the reverse, unfortunately, is very true in what we see a lot, that the capital allocation is not good on an incremental basis of what we're seeing. So a lot of things are hidden by the average stuff. We've got to be very careful about that. And um, I don't know. It's just like a statistical thing that maybe people need to think about in general, um, the way that they use statistics and everything. Um, it's incredibly important. And I don't know if it's necessarily just a finance concept, but it's one of the most important ones. There's a reason why like fast asset growth is the thing to be avoided when picking stocks and stuff. Um, now, if you can understand, and obviously there's big upside if you have fast asset growth, but it's because of this marginality idea. I mean, just the idea is that incrementally each dollar that you're putting in is getting lower and lower returns and everything. And I don't think people realize that as much. And even some concepts where I think I feel like I'm very out there versus some other people comes back to this idea. Um, when I say as negative things as I do about China, it's because to me, the incremental returns on capital are abysmal. Um, that since the financial crisis, there's been huge amounts. If we look at debt and capital and stuff being put into things that barely seem to be moving the needle. I mean, it, it just seems like huge amounts of capital are put into something that barely pushes it forward. And that wouldn't be the case if it wasn't thinking in terms of those incremental levels, but like, you know, if you apply that much capital to a problem, it should, you know, have a pretty big effect to what you're seeing. Um, if you put that much more capital into a business, you should see a pretty big uplift in EPS. And um, that's a really important concept in capital allocation for a business. And one that I think is definitely overlooked. Um, you know, when we talk to companies and stuff, they overall looking at their overall returns on on equity and all of that in the business. And they're not thinking about how much we can put into this one thing and how it does as much. Um, sometimes you have people talk about payback periods and stuff, but mostly that's kind of more off the shelf type things. Like they talk about the payback period, but it's kind of like someone probably told them that the, you know, this is what the payback period is for this new um, customer management tool thing or whatever, you know, like it's something that's explained to selling them on it. It's not this complicated calculation that they're doing of, um, you know, the kind of business that they're in and, and what it'll drive in terms of results. Do you ever think about when companies will sink a lot of capital into a business, an asset or whatever, and, you know, years go by and it still doesn't produce anything meaningful in the form of cash flow? And you're like, gosh, if they just took that capital and really just like put it in the S&P 500 or something like that, or T-bills, it just would have generated mm -hmm. something more than what it has. And not only that, but the brain power that goes towards that asset or trying to get it to work. And it just 
doesn't. It's like, gosh, if they could have just done something else with that capital. But I feel like there's almost a, I don't know what it is. I mean, maybe it's the human desire to want to continue to grow and build or whatever. But I mean, companies, Munger talks about all the time, right? It takes courage to sit with all that cash and do nothing. I mean, there's such a need to act and need to grow for the sake of growth as opposed to think about, oh, is this actually going to provide a decent, you know, return on invested capital? Is this actually going to generate cash? You know, it's like they go from talking about free cash flow to revenue growth. And the story becomes all about revenue growth. And why do they do that? Well, it's because the asset's not generating cash flow or free cash flow or anything. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, when we talk about those banks that failed, there's, if they had just been willing to pass up on mediocre returns, they could have been able to hold things in shorter term stuff and just not done anything with it. Um, and they would have survived, you know, they're just having a massive inflow of deposits isn't necessarily going to cause a bank's demise, but it does greatly increase the risk that it might happen because, um, you know, the hot money stuff does drive very rapid asset growth that you have. Um, and this is the other part that we've talked about a little bit. Um, I think one thing that's overlooked people don't overlook diversification in the sense of owning a bunch of things at the same time. But one concept that is not taught or should be taught or whatever is uh, diversification across time. You know, it's, it's very important to have temporal diversification um, because in, in any finance thing and in most businesses, it's a very dumb idea to bet everything on a certain time period in terms of the the opportunity that you're getting. So even if it's not insane to go 80% into treasuries or something, it's probably insane to be 80% in treasuries that you all bought in the same uh, slice of time. If those were built up over a long period of time where you're buying an asset or something, it's not necessarily a disastrous thing. Now, if you're betting and you're going to win big on it, it's a good decision, right? Like when people ask, how do you make a fortune in oil or something, right? It is by being on the sidelines and then buying a lot of properties or whatever when they're valued really, really low. Um, if you just buy them across time, it's not necessarily going to be as successful. But that that is a real tendency that you see happen um, where that's part of the problem of the asset growth issue is that companies have the cash and so they spend it at the time they have it. I mean... You see this with the buybacks all the time. You know, I'm a lot less positive sounding on buybacks as a general concept than most people are. And it's because companies that seem pretty cheap are not willing to buy back their stock because they now don't have any free cash flow. Whereas when they had a lot of free cash flow, they shouldn't have been buying back their stock, you know, in many cases. And so even ones where I'm okay with it, you know, um, I don't necessarily have a problem. We talked about Encore Wire or something. Like they produce a lot of free cash flow, they're fine business. But they're going to, one problem is that when they have high pricing that leads to high profits, they're going to buy back at that time and not at other times. Um, constant buybacks and stuff across a long period of time, I'm more okay with, even though the Teledyne style tenders to buy back are way better. That's because management is smart in those situations. Um, for most companies, they're going to fall into the problem that if you're, say, an oil company, you're going to buy back stock at the time in which you got a lot of free cash flow, which probably is a time where oil is overvalued. Versus buying back when you have low free cash flow, which is probably a time when oil is undervalued, you know, and your stock is undervalued. So, I mean, there's lots of cap allocation issues that you have at companies that you just have to get used to because you can't um, change their capital allocation. So to some extent, you have to foresee what issues there could be. Um, and that 
that's one of the dangers of some certain more asset heavy businesses and stuff. It, it depends because sometimes high asset um, businesses at least take up a lot of the cash flow, so you know exactly where it'll go before management gets to do something with it. Um, you know, I've definitely said before, um, it can be better if you have high cash flow and stuff for investing in a company where they're say food and beverage and tobacco and, uh, consumer packaged goods stuff and whatever, just because they may overpay for stuff, but you know, in most time periods, they can't really buy stuff that they think is related to their business that will just disappear where what's scary is like what happened with media 20 years ago and you know, happening sometimes now where they like pivot and buy something that could actually be not worth a lot. Right. So you're invested in something and then that, you know, the AOL time Warner deal and things like that. Um, you do deals in which you could give up something of a lot of value for something that has no real value. And usually you can't do that in industries where there isn't as much room for really dumb decisions. Like a lot of the worst investments uh, acquisitions and stuff are in tech things or fintech things or whatever, where it turns out to have no value for the company. Um, you have some that are a big hit, right? And so I'm not saying it's not a good idea overall, but it's just like, it's more dangerous. Um, and that's hard to evaluate. I think as long as, sometimes it can be hard to tell ahead of time, of course, if management hasn't had a long history of having free cash flow to allocate, but um, in situations where they are in a business where they're only going to buy things that have positive EBITDA and stuff already. And they're kind of valuing off EBITDA and the industry is durable. Then I don't think that there's as much possible damage, you know? So the concept that's important is durability. However you want to put that, you know, um, we talk about all these moats and stuff, but a huge part of it is that as long as you have a positive return, over what the returns would be like in the stock market generally. So it doesn't matter if you have a 20% return on equity, 30, 40, you know, it, you're, you're way over the amounts that you would need to reinvest, right? If you're WD 40 or something, and you had a way to do that for a very long time, um, that has a lot more value than if you're a company that might have it for a short period of time. And I don't know how to value those things. You know, um, that's when we talk about the tech things and stuff and like, okay, um, you know, Intel and, and all that stuff. Um, if you have an advantage, the advantage won't last forever. So if you fall behind, what happens? Um, the best books to read on that are like the Phil Fisher type stuff because companies make a lot of money in the first few years and then they have to come up with new products and new things. They have to keep staying ahead to be able to create something out of that moat, out of it lasting. But when we talk about Geico, that's something that's like nearly 10% a year growth from the time Graham bought it today. And it's had a moat that whole time. It's had good results and bad results and everything, but it's been something that could grow for 80 years at a nice rate. Um, and that's because of extreme durability of that product and everything. And it's hard to tell because obviously that product had only been around for a few decades and in the form that they were doing, it was really, really recent on that distribution model. But some things will last a really long time and other things won't. And that's like when we're talking about the green wall thing, that's the most important thing for the durability stuff is, yeah, I know they have a moat today or something, but how long will that last? Um, so, But that gets into the whole DCF thing, right? So in a sense, it's incorporated all the time mm -hmm. in finance mm -hmm. things, right? Like how long you go. Although they take a lot of standard time periods in those DCFs, yeah. I feel. I don't feel like they say, okay, well, I'm going to model it over a very long period of time and stuff because I'm looking at um, 
Johnny Walker as opposed to I'm looking at AMD or mm-hmm. something. Speaking of Geico, I got a love letter from Todd Combs from Geico. It was an appreciation, customer appreciation letter. And it was nice. Uh, yes. T- Todd Combs signed off on it. That's President Geico. I thought about I should have put it on the podcast. Oh, that was funny. Yeah, he acknowledges. Uh, they acknowledge that he's the CEO yeah. and everything. Mm-hmm. So, because remember we wondered about that before, like a while back. I don't know if you remember yeah, us talking yeah. about it, but we were, we're like, yeah, I don't know. Is he? That, yeah, I guess there was fairly little discussion. It was like very under the radar. Mm-hmm. I mean, it wasn't a big deal. It was like, oh, news came out that he was a was he interim yeah. CEO? Is that what it was, or was he act actively? Uh-huh. Yeah, I can't remember. But I remember we talked about it. And we we're like, yeah, that was kind of like really swept under the rug, like. You know, no news there. Nobody talked about it. No updates really on it or anything like that. Yeah, obviously not a good sign. So mm-hmm. probably something that they don't want to talk too much about with that. Even Buffett um, doesn't really acknowledge but, it. But yeah, I mean, he, when they ask, he does about their investing stuff. He seems to say like, well, they do a lot for us other than just investing. So even if they just, he's kind of like, you know, even if we were just getting S&P results from others, then you have to understand they do a ton of, to um, be worth their pay and yeah. everything. Um, and that's definitely true. I mean, it's definitely true for, for Todd. Um, but it just seems to be true in general that at Berkshire, you have to put on a bunch of different hats and you could be called in on any sort of project and stuff that would not normally be your uh, job description, um, at other companies. Mm -hmm. So you can definitely get overworked there with that stuff. Yeah. Mm Got it. Cool. Well, I want to thank everybody so much for tuning in with the both of us on the Focus Compounding podcast. Make sure you follow me on Twitter at, at Focused Compound to be able to ask questions that we will pull for the podcast in the future when we do a QA. and uh, If you have more longer form questions, uh, you could email them to me at, at focuscompounding at gmail.com and I will pull that for the podcast as well. Uh, wherever you are listening or watching us, make sure you hit the subscribe button, leave us a rating or review. And of course, if you're interested in learning about our money management services, reach out to me at my email, andrewatfocuscompounding.com. I want to thank everybody so much for all of the support. Thanks for tuning in, and we'll see you in the next podcast. Take care.